0: Chad Post is the director of Open Letter, a new press that specializes in the English translation of international works of note. You're located in yeah. Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Start with an observation, mm-hmm. and that is that uh, of, let say, the top ten novels that I think are the greatest, most of them have to be from authors that aren't English.
1: Yeah, I feel the same way, and I think that that... That's pretty true with a lot of people. That You think of the the greatest works that you've ever read or that exist, and they're frequently books that have been translated into English, like the Don Quixotes or War and Peace. For me, it's Hopscotch by Julio Cortazar was one of the books that, that actually got me really interested in international literature. And it was one of my all-time favorites.
0: And what we're reading, of course, are the works of translators who will take the same text and uh, turn up different books.
1: Right. That, that, that whole thing is an interesting issue. I mean, there's, a, there's lots of people who think that like, the translation is somehow secondary or not as good as the original, which really is a, a odd perspective to have. There's the, the old famous story of, with Gabriel Garcia Marquez saying that the English translation of 100 Years of Solitude is a better book than he wrote because Rabassa made it a better book in the translation process. So there's lots of, and, and that does happen frequently with, with translations, that they're as good, they could be even better than the original in some sense because they're like writing the book for a second time.
0: And I guess in, you know, in the cases where the the author isn't dead, there's collaboration
1: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially if the author knows some English. It can be a dangerous scene, though, if, if, they, if they know a little bit of English, but, think like, they know a lot of English. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so you set up the Open Letter
0: Press back in 2007, and affiliated with this, or underneath its umbrella, is your 3%, yeah, that's a blog, absolutely. is it? Yeah, it's um, a
1: blog and a review site that's kind of expanded in like some, some interesting ways. There's myself and two other people um, who had all been working at Dahlke Archive that came here to start Open Letter back in January of 2007. And by July of that year, we knew kind of what the, the look of the press would be, and like how it would, when it would start, when the first books would come out, like how we would be distributed. We knew all the, the kind of the specifics, but we also knew that it would take us about 12 to 18 months to publish our first book, because we have to acquire it, get it translated, do all the editing and production and publicity, and then the book would come out in, like, September of 2008. So in that that June-July period, it's like, well, you know, that's a long time. And we have sort of of more ADD qualities that I had. So I thought, well, you know what would be cool is if we could start a website beforehand that would sort of, you know, help cultivate an audience for that appreciated international literature. It wouldn't be like a marketing website. It would be much more of, like, you know, talking to these people who do, like, these sort of books that I like, we'd be able to review things, we'd be able to do all this different stuff. Mm. So it started out as like a blog and review site specifically. But then at some point um, we we came up with, I guess it was at the end of 2007, were, we were discussing like, how there should be a list or an award for the best translated book. And that it it became very, it was a very odd experience because I wrote on the blog about how, you know, I was sort of pissed that there's all these like year-end, best-of books, lists, and none of them have to do with international literature. It's just completely like not there. The best books of the year were all written by Americans, except for like sometimes Pierre Patterson would sneak on there, or 2666 in this year's case. But it wasn't like a very comprehensive thing. And I knew that there are a lot of good international books that are coming out they're just not being highlighted. So we thought we'd make a list. Um, so I wrote about it on, online and asked people for recommendations. And suddenly it became this weird kind of game in which people are like, I remember a translation that came out. It wasn't even that it was the book that they loved the most, but they couldn't even think of what books are, were translated or were published in translation because there's so few of them and because they're so under-publicized. So I decided that there that we couldn't obviously couldn't solve all the world's problems but what we could do is that we could start a translation database that would track all the original translations coming out and being published in america so that we could see the list and know how many books because even three percent is part of a there's a study various studies that have been done that suggested that three percent of all books published in america are in translation so that's where we stole the, that statistic mm-hmm. for our name of our site but there's no real evidence of that there's no like Place where you can look and say like, oh, here were the books. There, yeah. you get a number. You basically you know. have
0: to kind of go through and research all the different uh, the presses that have published translation. Exactly. And then put that up against the total number of, of books published. Yeah. Exactly,
1: and there's and there's never any specifics. So we started, even the, though uh, you did come rates. up with
0: the point seven percent. Of literary and pro and and poetry
1: exactly, and that's what that's what this database led to is by being able to look at and keep track. And I went through all these catalogs, and all these websites, and started putting in like all the details. And even these are ones that I have to enter. Yeah. Um, but uh, they that way we were able to to say like yes, there was two hundred and I think it was for fiction. There's like two hundred and seventy five, two hundred and eighty books that came out in two thousand and eight that were works of of literature and translation, and then like seventy works of poetry. Um, so we were able to get get something specific. And then out of that, we also created this Best Translated Book Award. So the website, so 3% sort of grown is my whole point. That it went from yes, being just okay. a blog and a a website to like also housing this database and also supporting this award that they're going to give out every year into the future to help bring some attention to to great translated books.
0: Right. And, you know, again, it's, uh, it's, it's so interesting because uh, you look at the greatest books that have been written... And, um, so one automatically thinks, well, um, this, this must, you know, this isn't just a, an isolated trend. I mean, it's sure, sure, right. back, uh, you know, for example, when the, the great Russians were writing in the mm-hmm. late uh, 1800s, um, mid-late 1800s, um, that may have been a, you know, for that, for the Russian right. literary scene, and you know, that was... The heyday, like the golden yeah. days. Yeah. But I just wonder what it's like right now. I mean, as a, as someone who, you know, I'm an English-speaking reader. Right. What am I missing? Yeah. Now, that's one thing. But the other thing is, uh, so how do you, you just go and look out and, and read all sorts of reviews that that tell you that this is, these are really, really great. Yes. Work.
1: Sometimes, yeah, it's reading stuff, but also meeting with people and getting to, we've, over time, like I've been working in publishing for, I think, just over, just about 10 years, essentially. Um, I've developed like a pretty good network of people that, that, who I can ask questions to and whose tastes I trust, or at least I, I know what their tastes are, and start to do a lot of talking to people to find out like what's going on in different parts of the world. Yeah. And by having that, like in going to like places like the Frankfurt Book Fair and and London Book Fair and talking to all these people, we start to get a better sense of, like, what's going on in different parts of the world and, like, what's um, what things have been overlooked. Because the, the, one of the interesting things about what you're saying, too, is, like, the, the Russians were translated... Um, you know, early the, in the 20th century, a lot of books were translated by kind of yeah, the consynchronous yeah. sort of, yeah. But obviously. Um, but generally speaking, like, over the first part of the 20th century, there were a lot of translations done into English, and people read them, and they were talked about and discussed, and then that sort of falls off, and, like, a lot of things go kind of under the radar. So even, like, there could be very classic, great, fantastic, lasting books that have been published in other languages over the past 50 years, but there's, like, a really small chance that they're actually translated into English. So we're even looking for... You know, all the works of the 20th century, there's things that have been overlooked. And the way that our culture and our media functions now, those books don't generally get as much attention. So for them to become the classics that these books did in the past is going to be a different, it's it's kind of an uphill battle. Yeah. that it might not have been
0: although you do mention I think I saw on your blog you mentioned that the New York Times reviewed yeah. four in one
1: And this week they have three more. <laughs> so they so something's happening. Yeah, they're they're everyone always criticizes them for not reviewing translations or for fiction in general. And then when they when they do, I don't think anyone actually gives them any any, any props for, for doing that. But I think that you know, I've talked to Sam Tanhouse a lot. And I think he does like works in translation I don't think that it's like a bias of his I think it's just you know the way that the business works you review the big book of the moment and the big books of the moment tend not to be translations in the minds of reviewers or booksellers or or whomever yeah Um,
0: although you know the um there's the new translation of War and Peace
1: yeah it was huge huge yeah and that sold tons of copies and got lots of attention and even the New York Times had a big book club about that (coughs) excuse me um which had a lot of participants and a lot of comments and that did really well, and then there's also like the twenty six sixty six phenomenon for bond thing that was that book is everywhere,
0: yeah, and I want to get to that because uh because okay, I can't think of any other this is an interesting study or case because yeah. I can't think <coughs> of any other author that has has foreign author that has set completely dominated scene like yeah. this one why this guy and I mean partly I suppose it's because he's great but yeah.
1: why this guy versus you know someone else who's great exactly I, yeah, it's interesting. I think the only other person that, that I could think of... It seems like there's usually one that comes along that doesn't... I mean, I don't know that anyone's been as big as blano and, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think why that is in a second, but Sebald was getting up there and getting close, yeah. um, and then he died, he died young, yeah. yeah, and so there may have been, and he didn't have enough works to like build up, because it was a very building process for blano. He had a... Um, part of Nazi literature in the Americas was translated and published in Granta magazine back years ago, like I think in the early 90s, mid-90s maybe, um, and then it was sort of dormant. And then Harville in the UK and New Directions here published By Night in Chile. And then there was Distant Star. And at that time, New Directions had signed on like seven books. But they hadn't signed on Savage Detectives in 2666. Um, so they were going to do all these, a lot of the smaller ones, the short story collections, the smaller novels. Um, so they did those two. He was starting, those books were well-reviewed and, and people read them. But I don't think that they were, they weren't nearly on the the level of 2666. Um, but they started to build that kind of an audience and then they did the, the, this is New it, Direction. New Directions. Yeah. And the New Directions brought out, oh, Last Evening's, Last Evening's on Earth? Is that what it's actually called? The Short Story Collection was the third book that they did. Um, and that got a lot, a little bit of attention too. And then Savage Detectives came out and that was from FSG. A bigger press had a little bit more clout in terms of getting the review coverage And they sort of blew that book up. And I think that a lot of that was due to Lauren Stein, the editor, that he did a lot to try and promote that book specifically, knowing that, you know, it's crazy. We've got this book that's essentially like, you know, starts off with like a normal story and then it explodes in all these fragments. Um, It's not your typical book that Americans will be, that we think as publishers or as media people or whatever, that Americans will will glean on to. But he did what he could to get get that out there. And it it hit like a, a pretty wide audience and people really liked it. Um, so New Directions continues on with what they were doing, doing Nazi literature, Amulet, and helping to build like this good, solid backlist and reputation for him. And then twenty six sixty six comes on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that becomes like the big book. And I think the FSG again, like they're they're kind of powering what Lauren did to like promote that in like very interesting ways, like creating the idea of the um, three volume in one paperback, yeah, um, and the hardcover at the same point in time. That was one of his ideas. That's a very interesting model that most. It's a very atypical publishing idea because most of the time you're like, no, we do a hardcover and then a year later we do a paperback. Yeah. Um, and he's like, no, I think we should do both of them at the same time um, and do it in this unique way. He also did a lot of stuff through like Facebook and through other like kind of viral and social marketing sort of ideas for creating and mobilizing those fans of 2666 instead of just trying to do it in the old school, like, oh, get a lot of reviews and so people go buy it. Instead, right. he got a lot of people telling a lot of people about about this book and about Bolaño. Bolaño has like a great story to him too, especially since he, he did die rather young as too. Well. As well. Yeah. Um but he has he has a lot in his in his life and in his kind of reputation that that, that people can like relate to. Yeah. But before him, like there always does seem to be like one who like may not be that popular but is sort of like the international author of the moment, like Saramago was after he won the Nobel Prize. Maybe Kurtesh for a little bit, but that was a little more complicated. Um, Sebald, Bolaño. I mean, there's, there's kind of someone who's, like, rises above at, at various points in time. But I think that... Why is that, then? I, 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 I have... My one... I'm not sure why that happens exactly, except that there becomes almost like a token international author. Yeah. The thing that, that I've noticed before that... that bothers me about that kind of phenomenon is that frequently if an author becomes the author, the international author for that region or for that time, all the other authors from that area are sort of ignored. So for instance, with Saramago being, wins the Nobel Prize, oh, Saramago, Portugal, great writer, blah, blah, blah. Um, Antonio Lobo Antunes, who was like equally good, had published as many books, was actually in in Portugal, there's like a 50-50 split over who should win the Nobel Prize. He's kind of completely no, no ignored. Him, yeah. yeah, he's he's either not either. not paid attention to at all, um, and so that that seems to happen. I think it's that maybe it's like well, a social. Like, why hasn't thing. anyone picked him up? Like, why hasn't a publisher? He's been published widely, actually, in, in English translation. In English, Grove's published like six, seven books of his. Delkey did one. Um, Norton's did two recently. Um, so he gets he gets published and he gets good reviews and he gets he sells fairly well for for an international author, from what I have heard. Right. Um, but it's not, like, on that level of popularity with Saramago. Granted, he's a little more difficult to read, too. He's not as, as storytelling-based. He's much more of, like, a impressionistic sort of, almost not surreal, but, you know, more more experimental, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, author. So there's there's that challenge. But still, it seems like the, like our, our social mind works in some way, in which you like to say, like, here's the Portuguese author, here's yeah. the international author, here's the whomever it is, and that's South the American. one right yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. South American, I think, has suffered because of the perception that that Latin American, South American literature should be magical realism. So, like, they, after like the boom and everyone sort of focused on that, like they've been sort of forced into this pigeonhole of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're not a, a magical realist, like, wow, are you really a South American author? Um, but but the,
0: I guess <laughs> the thing that comes to mind is um, the question. you mean, know, there, there's the there are there are editors at all of these different publishing houses right. who are tasked with scouring the world just like you are for fantastic writers because I mean if you can get a fantastic writer into English right. and, it's, and it's going to be fantastic then you'd think that the audience would just naturally come, know, to, come it? to it and that they would make a profit which is really what it's about <laughs> maybe <laughs> so why why aren't they you know i mean they're looking at the english language right. writers and there's, there's a ton of those and yeah. a lot of it's pretty damn mediocre yeah um why aren't they going and finding these other great writers for us
1: i think there's a couple there's a couple things that play into that um that specifically, one is that I think the editors at most larger houses that don't have like a long i mean a lot of a lot of larger houses have done a lot of translations, but currently they don't do that many the The six big houses and all their subsidiaries produce like twenty percent of the translation, so they're you know a fairly small number, but most of the editors that are working there are deluged with with American writers with the agents that they're meeting with on a regular basis that are telling them about the new American whomever or, like, this new book's coming from this this author that's been building an established reputation. They're getting all this information about American writers. They're seeing them at parties. They're seeing Mm -hmm. them at BA. And international authors aren't really part of that scene. So they have, like, great amount of knowledge and understanding of how the American writing scene is working right now. Then all of a sudden, say, for whatever reason, a Romanian publisher sends over a Romanian book in Romanian to this editor and has a letter saying, this is the great Romanian writer you should look at. They get there and it's like... I don't even know what you do with that. Like, if you if your mind is all like you you know everything about the American scene, and you get this thing. You are like, I know nothing about Romanian. I don't know how to read Romanian. I don't know anyone who does read Romanian. I, I can't name like two Romanian authors. How would I know that this is that that good? It could sound interesting, but I don't even know how to treat this this well, but, object.
0: Right. But um, I mean, wouldn't they? Wouldn't uh, I guess? What about the tra- you know the translators would probably have to do it on spec though. But an English translation. Right of that romanian masterpiece that lands on the desk would stand a much better chance of getting published
1: exactly and that's that's a different a different scheme different problem i think that translators the turn we work with a lot of translators and they're very active about like writing up doing sample translations sending along information you know trying to promote promote the books that they're interested in the projects they're interested in for, to
0: you, to for you uh, to to us yeah. yeah yeah
1: i don't know how open the Bigger publishers are to that. Um, I think that they they typically work through an agent system, and not a lot of translators have agents. So it's, it, it they, although some people like um, like John Siciliano at Penguin would be very open to hearing from translators, and is and has done a number of books based on translator recommendations. I think that he's sort of an unusual figure in that in that regard. I think that a lot of times it's just not that, that 's not how the system works for them, but more importantly from like the business point of view so you got the the problem of not a lot of editors who do a lot of foreign languages they're not that well versed in the, the, the literatures of the of outside of the english speaking world, but the business side of it too, translations are expensive to a lot of these places because you have to pay for the translation itself, which costs you know thousands of dollars um, but more importantly there 's kind of been the built in perception that these books aren't going to sell as well they're not going to get it reviewed as well and therefore they're going to be lost leaders and they're not going to make they're not going to make a profit even if they're great writing they're great writing that'll be appreciated by a much smaller audience than what these presses need to survive clients a year or... yeah if they if most of the like the bigger presses like they have a sort of minimum of it ha- a book has to sell 20,000 copies to to break even hmm. and it, I don't know how many people will actually admit to that that is the actual number but it's a number that comes up frequently like selling 20,000 okay, it'll be, uh, a commercial press can can live with that. Um, But they're getting more and more pressure all the time to up their their returns, so to build in all these extra costs and know that this book's probably going to sell, like, 5,000 copies in not 20, it's not going to work out so well for their account's point of view, yeah. um, and it is it is much more of a, of a kind of gamble in their minds, which is silly, because every book's a gamble, like, we don't know yeah, exactly. which book's going to well, sell you would hope, one another.
0: You would hope that it would be the quality of the prose that would sell it.
1: Right, but they, I don't think that they see it that way, because, I, I mean, so much of it's based on... on the commercial model is based so much on like advances and on like that pre-hype. So if you say an American author comes along, it could be a terrible, mediocre book. If you're going to give them $2 million advance, that book's going to be reviewed everywhere. Mm-hmm. But how often are you going to take the Romanian author and say, I'll give you $2 million, now your book's going to be reviewed everywhere. Mm-hmm. Instead they say, like, well this book's probably not going to sell that well, so we'll make an offer of $10,000 advance and we'll pay our translator and we'll hope to sell like 15,000 copies. Well, the marketing and publicity and sales departments see that you're only spending $10,000 on this book means it's not an important book. So they're not going to try and like push it the way that they are, the $2 million mediocre, the, the, the mediocre and barricade book that got a $2 million advance. They're going to push that because that has to earn back this huge advance. Yeah. This $10,000 thing, I don't know, can do whatever it does. So it kind of falls, doesn't get the same attention, doesn't get the same same respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the good writing thing should work out, but I mean, so how, how does anyone hear about the book is, such a, is a bigger problem. Like if you can find, but
0: isn't I mean, you talk about viral marketing. I and mean, incidentally, right. I'm speaking with Chad Post, who is the director of Open Letter, which is a press out of the Rochester University that specializes in translating international authors into English. Uh, maybe there's a buy american sort of thing going <laughs> on. With you know, one of the criticisms of Americans is that they're so ethnocentric, and that yeah. so many of them don't care or know about what's going on outside of their borders right um, is there is there
1: that I you know I, they, it's it's easy to say that there that there is because there's various evidence that sort of points that way the way that people like um, like people who are like uh, Spanish American writers are much more popular than Spanish writers and like there's there's sort of that this there's, there's various things that make it look that way but I'm not sure that's actually true I think that there are there are literary readers who read who read literature no matter where it's from, and that's a small, not a huge group of readers in America. Most readers in America are entertainment based, are fact based. They want to read, you know, the nonfiction book about whatever, or you know, something that's just entertaining to them. And that's that's one category. But the people who are like more literary and more interested in literary fiction, um, they'll read anything. But they're they're a smaller audience. They're they're not they're not the people that that you're usually targeting when you're trying to sell like thousands and thousands of copies of a book if you're trying to sell like five six thousand copies this this audience is your audience mm. and i don't think that they're i don't think they're concerned if it's a translation no. or not i think that they're more than willing to read these books but it's it, getting them the information is something that uh, isn't done that well i mean traditionally publishers um they have like kind of a business to business model like a publisher deals with a bookstore and they deal with the book reviewers and the the media, they don't deal with customers per se. So their systems set up in a way that they kind of hate their customers. They hate readers because readers are messy it all up. It's easy if you say like, I'm going to sell 2000 copies of Barnes and Noble, get the author on NPR, I'm done. (laughs) And compared to, I'm going to deal with reader X who knows a lot of people and can help spread the word and virally yeah. Yeah. spend this, that's a really messy system for them. So yeah. the, the, when you get to these books that are um, in translation that are literary works that would appeal to like this pre- specific audience, it doesn't quite fit the the normal way of promoting. Like it, It's it's a different sort of model. And I think a lot of independent presses who do do the bulk of, of literature and translation know that and they've figured out ways in which they're able to make their business models work. And they found that people are responsive and do like international literature, but are it's they, just not, you know, hundred thousands of people. That no, are but are
0: they making money, though? That's the question. The
1: smaller smaller presses and independent presses do, if not make money, depending on how much you expect to make, they, they at least break even. No, but, well, yeah, it's, and it's they're, just they keep and the they're, doors, they're the lights keep, on, and, keep and the the people on. paid. And... I mean, publishing books have never been a very profitable no, business. I mean, no. they've always traditionally been like a 2%, 3% sort of return. Um, the problem is that with, as things have been acquired, merged, and become more of these part of the media giants, that that percentage has been up to, like, where the owners want it and stockholders want it to be 10%, 15% mm-hmm. return. That's very difficult to do, especially if you're doing a book that is in translation, that has these extra costs. It's going to sell five, six, seven thousand 7,000 copies. Maybe it'll sell, like, 15,000 over, like, a 20-year period, but it's not going to be an immediate hit. It'll be a, a literary work that has a literary audience. Um, but for a small press... They don't have that same kind of independent press. They don't have that same pressure. They yeah. just have to break yeah. even. They they're doing it for love. They're doing it to make a little bit of money so that they can survive no, and, to, and also to
0: preserve and uh, promote mm-hmm. great literature. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so their their whole their whole operating scale is so much different. Mm. Um, they don't have the same kind of staff size that that a big press does. They don't they don't pay those kind of rents. They don't yeah. you know spend that much on on the advances or on these things. And so like if you reduce all of those those various costs. And then you sell five thousand copies by being innovative and doing interesting things with the audience. You can break even just fine. Um, yeah. Which it seems to me
0: too, though that uh, that these um, that that these presses um, uh, can make. Uh, you know, I uh, guess what I'm trying to say is there seem, there's, there's seems to be a ton of opportunity here because. Yeah. There's, so, there's you know, so many more authors that no one seems to, at least in this huge market of ours, right. seems to be caring about. You, you'd think that there's a, a real opportunity here.
1: Yeah, and the the people who, who are into it do recognize and talk about it that way. Barbara Appler from uh, New Directions, who's now, I guess, been named recently the publisher of New Directions, she um, used to say that going to the Frankfurt Book Fair was like walking through a field of flowers and picking whichever ones you want because... You can literally if the Frankfurt Book Fair is like like eight or ten halls that yeah, are that huge. are divided up by by country frequently. Um, so the Americans and, and English speaking world are way off in a hall that's separated from everyone else called Hall Eight, and then like Halls Three, Four, Six are all like um, international halls. And you go walk through there, you'll see like a handful of like American publishers that are also walking through there, but not very many. I mean, there's just just a few. So like if, as an American press going up to the Slovenian. Um, publisher and saying, oh, I'm interested in finding out what Slovenian books there are. Mm. They're stunned. They're like, oh my God, really? You're from America for sure? And you really want to know about about these books? So you do have like great opportunities, but it takes a lot more research, a lot more work. I mean, it's more, I wouldn't say necessarily, I mean, doing any, being an editor at any level is, is has its difficulties and its challenges and, and a lot of work that goes into it. Um, it's sort of difficult for doing international stuff because There's so many languages you obviously don't know all them. You have to find people that'll help help read those books. You're you're kind of relying upon other other networks than just your own own reader reader ability.
0: Yeah, but I mean, also, I mean, all you have to do is sort of find the best literary critics in each in each country, and and, you know, two or three of the best.
1: Right. And
0: if they come up with some kind of consensus, right. Then then you can usually some titles.
1: Yeah, and it's easy. I think it's easy to find like a few titles from any country. Like you can you can talk to a number of people, critics, um, other editors, academics, academics, some translators, and say like, for China, we want to find out about like ten books from China that need to be translated. You can get and kind of cross reference and find like that list, and then it's mainly just getting some samples, getting some some more information about each one of those books, and deciding which one probably fits best. Because obviously can't publish all of them. Yeah. Um, so you, you end up making your choices based on your own aesthetic vision for the press. But it's not, I don't think it's that hard either. But I think mm. that you kind of, I mean, it takes a lot of time. So you're sort of, if you're all in on translation, it's a lot easier to work that system and to understand it and to, to work within it. If you're doing it like, oh, I'm doing 99% American books and then this one translation, like that seems much more haphazard. Unless yeah. like it's not as systematic, it's not, you don't have the time for that. And that's just yeah, the way it is for most of these people.
0: So are you the I mean, you and what, are there a few others that are doing this, I assume? The
1: for the for the press, yeah, there's um two other full time people, one E. J. Van Lanen who's does is a senior editor, and Nathan Furl who does a lot of production and design and also um helps with some marketing stuff. No, but, but sorry, my question for the was editorial stuff? No, sorry, oh.
0: for other other your oh. press is doing this. Who else is doing it? Other
1: oh yeah, there's a there's a good number. The Archipelago is one that does a lot of literature and translation. Um, New Directions, obviously, Delkey Archive, Europa Editions—that just got a big feature in the New York Times. They do a good number of, of works in translation. Um, there's there's a few others. Uh, Melba House um, is—they have a really interesting series of like the art of no- the novella. Where mm-hmm. they did both classic books that were in translation and contemporary ones, some written in English as well. But it's like part of a, a very good series, and they're bringing out these Hans Fallada books from. Uh, it's a Austrian writer, right? Not German, um, but he um, about the, the Nazis. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every man dies alone. That's coming out. So they do some. There's Ugly Duckling does a ton of stuff for poetry. I mean, there's a good number. Yeah, it doesn't of sound like presses.
0: there's. It, this I mean, you know, this three percent number is kind of shocking when you. First, come across it, but from what you're saying, it's pretty healthy. It's
1: it, it is it is in the way that there's there's often kind of a debate on like we say the three percent number is low, and there's there's problems with it being such a low number because to become like a full time translator, if only X number of books are being published in translation, makes that a very competitive and strange, difficult field, difficult to exist. There's even a study in um for Europe that they looked at like how the pay rates and like the way that that translators, full time translators. Can can earn a living, and there's a footnote on there about the UK. They didn't have any U.S. numbers, but in the UK, they're like there may not actually exist a full-time translator in the <laughs> UK because yeah. there are not enough <laughs> books to su- so, to su- support this. So there's a problem with the critical mass issue. But another uh, way of looking at it is, okay, there are last year there were like 358 works in translation of fiction and poetry that came out. Now of that 358, very few of those actually got attention, got got a readership that they deserve. There's a lot of those that. The readership was smaller than it deserved to be. It needed to reach more readers, and there would be more people to be interested, but they didn't get the right kind of promotion or right kind of publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so the focus me... In for, for me has been more on trying to get, trying to take that, that 358 and get more attention for it, oh, and okay. not just, just expand the number. Expanding the number is great and necessary, but also it doesn't help if you expand the number and no one's reading any of the books. So you take
0: it upon yourself then to promote all translations not just the ones that you're right yeah doing. yeah that's what we're trying to do with this is sort of a, what, an so altruistic uh, <laughs> just a, a mission yeah. Uh, yeah yeah insane. yeah no love and then uh, yeah okay and again i guess the motivation is to get the best works in front of the most people
1: yeah yeah that yeah. really is what, what kind of drives the three percent side of things with open letter, we're obviously trying to get people to read these specific books that we really
0: right. Like and again, discuss. you know, you talk about not getting um, the exposure, but I'm looking here at the Landscape in Concrete, and you've got a you've got a, a a blurb from the Times Literary Supplement on the cover, and then on the back you've got the New York Times Book Review, the two of the premier.
1: This that was this is a reprint um, that was published originally in the '60s by Grove, and that's where all those all those reviews are from. From the oh, 60s and from okay, the okay, so they're okay. they So for the paperback edition, we're just using some of the other ones. But that, it is interesting. So many people wrote about that book. And then he kind of fell off the radar, more or less, until he died a couple years ago. Jakov
2: Lind, right? Yeah,
1: we're doing this book and Ergo, and um, New York Review Books is doing Soul of Wood by him this year. So it's like a Jakov Lind year. Um, hmm. But he 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 did get a lot of attention when he came out. And it'll be interesting to see how people respond to this. I mean, typically you don't get reviews for reprints because, the, you know, review sections are, are primarily looking at the new books. However, there's a lot of That's where the advertising, or tiny
0: little advertising dollars are, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> like yeah. Both dollars. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> the like, two... like Conqueror will be interesting because that's the first time that that's being published in the U.S. So... Um, How do you pronounce the,
0: the author's sure
1: Yeah, if there's This is one of those typical, like, one of the arguments that Americans don't want to read foreign fiction because they can't pronounce names like that. <laughs> like, what it looks like looks like character yes, maybe yeah. Yeah. um but but it, it's funny actually we were, I i did a um a radio thing for wisconsin public radio with esther allen who's a translator and works at the center for literary translation she's a professor and an all-around fantastic is person
0: was that whereabouts is the center for literary translation
1: Hers it? she's at columbia okay. um, and she started it there she actually teaches at Broke now and does other other things but she helped start the center center there okay um but we were on the radio and the, there was a call-in thing and the last person who called in said you know i'm one of the people who doesn't read translations because i can't pronounce these names i don't even know how to read them and it was like it was sort of the end of the program so it probably gave like a somewhat flippant answer but it was mm. like you know it doesn't really matter like, no. you can make up whatever you want and it'll work fine call it like yan whatever uh I mean, yeah, you could just say "stad." It doesn't. It doesn't. Matter well, and that that's, that,
0: The same thing holds for the actual. I mean, I look. You know, I think back of my experience reading Dostoevsky.
1: Yeah.
0: Or or Tolstoy. I mean, I just sort of skimmed over the names because right. they were so lengthy. You know, it's like okay, fine. I sort of know who that is. You know, it's, uh, it, it's it, that's that's a pretty lame excuse. It's such a remember. lazy American excuse.
1: Yeah.
0: In yeah. place. <laughs> These. Uh, let me then, if I could, uh, sort of. Um, uh, winding down um, that, can you well first of all it doesn't seem like the the english translating world is missing anyone
1: I don't, I don't know there's i think there's areas of the the of the world that have been overlooked for a long period of time for example in in india like there's there has been one hindi author living contemporary hindi author that's been translated and published in in america in 30 some years so there is a lot of like the indian authors that you hear about or that you that you read are ones who are writing in english but there's a huge wealth i mean there's so many languages spoken in india 22 Mm -hmm. officially recognized languages there's so much writing done in all those different different languages but those books don't make it out of india at all um so i think that's like one big huge empty spot that we've missed out on Africa has tons of books that are being written in English and in other languages that don't get translated or published in America, the UK, um, China for a long time was the same way, although now that's kind of the hot area, um, the world. So there's a lot more that's being done there, but I think that there, there are still spots cause we, and uh, there's, there's kind of two issues with it. I mean, there's the, the independence and nonprofits are doing the bulk of the translations, not all of them, but they're doing a, you know, a very healthy percentage of that. Mm they don't have quite as much capital to do, you know, 50 books in a year. They're all doing, like, 10, 12, like you. 14, yeah. So yeah. even if they say, like, there's got to be, like, hundreds, a few hundred great books that come out around the world every year, You kind of can't keep up with that, much less, like, things that have been missed. So there's still, like, a little bit of a production issue. But more importantly, like I think, too, like, the way that we are missing it is there, there are great gems out there that just do not get recognized and, and that go reaching, like, 400 readers when they could be reaching... Four thousand, um, and that's that's a bigger bigger problem. So in a way, we're as a culture, we're still missing it, even if it's even if it's physically there. Yeah. And the tree falling in the woods with no one there sort of scenario. Yeah.
0: What um what are the top... I don't know. This is on putting you on spot, and it doesn't. Got, okay. I it it <laughs> or, But yeah. I was just uh, I was going to say uh, what are the what are the top the top ten greatest and we don't have to do we don't have to run through this right now but i'm just I'm just thinking of the sort of greatest non-english language speaking novels of the in let's say published in the last 150 years
1: and that's that is a tough question do you, do you
0: have do you have a list
1: i i don't we've talked about making a list like that actually yeah. and trying to trying to get a lot of people pulled together and and Create such a list. So okay. at some point in time that probably will come true. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, a lot of the Russian authors you're talking about, I'd say, are up there. The the French, like, Loubert, also, like, the nouveau Roman, the, the Rogriés and the Soros are people I really like. Um, Antonio Lobo and Tunis I mentioned earlier is one of my favorites. Kobo Abe from Japan is also phenomenal to me. But, but, they, but they're,
0: they're recognized. They're not, you know, they're not So That's uh, people
2: go to five years and then we go somewhere less dull oh, okay
0: right good. so it's known well that's good if you're all there then you uh then there's lots of other kids and it's you know there's the services grade. yeah no,
2: really, we really like it uh, and you've got all of the you know the advantages of living next to london without actually having to live in the middle of it
0: right uh, my uh, cousin lives uh it's crouch end or around there. Sure, yeah, it's good. Though. Yeah. So how about we uh, sit down and uh... oh, I was, so what I are wondered... you
2: recording on? You've got a stereo. I'm sorry, I'm just. This is my inner nerve. No, uh, oh that's that's fine.
0: fine.
2: You've got a stereo microphone. Yeah. You're calling onto mini
0: disc. Mini disc and the and, and a backup. This is just an MP3 uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, player that I found. It's got a really good. Uh, microphone in it cool so yeah and i just see that that one's full but i've i've done interviews where i've had all three of them going and yeah. two of them have screwed up yeah. so yeah. Yeah. Um, mm, that's really good as a voice of experience too. oh yeah. I, I, I missed it uh, yeah this is tragic i lost i want to get I'll just show you i got your incendiary
2: here i got i got one uh, oh cool Oh, great.
0: I guess you
2: must have signed a few of those,
0: but, uh, yeah, this was, uh, was a few years ago. Wow. let me see here. Yeah, here's the little...
2: Hey, it's the limited edition hardback. Yeah. So this is, uh... And
0: then this one is... There you go. This is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Number
2: 172. Oh, that's so good, I'm going to take a picture of that. I love it when these ones come back. They're really good, really, there's 500 of them.
0: Oh, good,
2: well. And uh, I've produced them in conjunction with this guy called um, David Headley oh. at Goldsboro Books, which is a tiny collector's shop in okay. um, Cecil Court in London. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. I love Dave, I think he's a really good guy, and he, he picks books that he likes and persuades the publisher to do a limited edition. So we did. And every now and then I see one of these again. Yeah. And it's really good. Um,
0: it's, I love Cecil Court. Yeah. I uh, I interviewed uh, Peter Ellis. Yeah. Right in his bookstore. Great. Uh, a, couple, a couple of years ago. I've got mm. that interview up on my site. And uh, Nigel Williams is there too, right? Oh, yeah. I think. Yeah.
2: That's true, actually. And a few others. Yeah. yeah. I'll send, I'll send this to Dave if I really like oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. Would you like me to send it, sign it again, or is that enough? Oh, I'd
0: love that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'd love that. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. And oh, this one, too. Uh, Maybe get that over with. Yeah. Because
2: sometimes I forget, and then I'm like kicking myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've got some special stamps as well for that one. Oh,
0: okay. If I can find them. For Joseph, who's is Joseph? Is that your Joseph's, son? Yeah, kid number two. Okay. Nice. That's nice. That's that's really a, a way of immortalizing him, eh?
2: Yeah.
0: I really um, yeah, I hope to do one for each of my kids. How many kids are you going to have?
2: Well, we've got another <laughs> one on the way. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: here it is. Good this. <laughs> you really are. Uh, you must enjoy it then, because. Three, I couldn't even uh, imagine three.
2: Well, I'm, yeah, we i work at the moment, though.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is good. Just shows you how uh, this, uh, this careless typo here. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's a very, uh, a very good um, illustration of the fact that they really
2: don't give a shit at all. Yeah, and it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, and that that um, the whole book actually, Life in the United Kingdom. I um, yeah. ordered it from Her Majesty's Stationery Office. do, mm-hmm. and it's a pile of shit. It really is. It's um, it has a sort of five, well, it has a ten-page guide to British history, and which managed to miss, misquotes Churchill and loads of oh. grammatical yeah. errors. And yeah. It's, I mean, I'm not entirely against the idea of citizenship tests yeah. um, as long as we can come up with a definition of what constitutes being British yeah. right? and I think that argument should probably take about 5,000 years and you know, that would be fun it would be a good argument to have because you know, no one is going to agree with me about what I think being British is and yeah. that would be great, you know, I would therefore fail
0: Yes, the right. right, even though you've yeah. got every right to, yeah. to call yourself British. Sure. yeah.
2: So I think it's really Orwellian, the idea of having citizenship tests, and I think um, it really hammers it home when they don't even make the supporting documentation make any sense whatsoever.
0: It's, it's interesting, you make a couple of points about, uh, and I thought of Orwell, this sort of central... Where is it here? The, the the sort of central offices. You go on a bit um, um, about the queen too, you, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm interested by the the queen and just this idea that we.
0: And how miserable she is. She's a miserable. Now. They.
2: What's um? I mean, actually, no. There's nothing wrong with her. I mean, she's she's just who she's she doing is. her job. And yeah,
0: doing it, you know, with stoicism.
2: But the problem is that you know, I don't I don't like the fact that she's doing that job. And
0: you mean you don't like the fact that there is that job?
2: Yeah, I yeah. find it appalling. I yeah. mean, there was this whole debate after um the U.S. presidential elections. You know, could there be a British Barack Obama? Yeah. And, you know, the media was charging around saying, sorry, do you need to get that one? No. Saying, uh, you know, well, who would it be? You know, would it be this person or that person? And they were looking around, you know, who's, who's the black guy who could be our, our prime minister? Mm-hmm. It was good. It was a really interesting debate to have. Yeah. So, um, you know, racially, have we moved on as far as um, the United States has? Yeah. Good Good argument. But I mean, this, is, this is the big picture, which is like we could not possibly have a Barack Obama because we don't have a democracy. Mm-hmm. We don't uh, have anything resembling a democracy. And we have um, at the moment, in a time of global financial crisis, we have a prime minister making generational decisions who wasn't elected by anyone. Yeah. who was imposed yeah. by his party. He wasn't yeah. even voted for by members of his own party. Yeah. I and mean, it's insane. I mean,
0: we don't have How long he in now for? Oh, well, you know, a couple more years, tradition
2: or? dictates that he should call an election within a couple of years, yeah. at the time of his choosing, when he thinks he's doing well in the polls. Yeah. What Isn't a, a crazy guy? way to run a democracy. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. And so um, I, I look at America and I just, you know, absolutely idolise its, its democratic system. Yeah, It gets really, really good.
0: And well, the way the Congress is sort of screwing up the... the or, or sort of bogging down the ability of the president is is a positive thing in one way but in yeah. another it's a gridlock you yeah. Know, so
2: yeah that's pretty shocking as well and he's got when, when he's got such a sort of sweeping popular mandate yes to block block is, is pretty shocking yes yeah. well let's
0: uh, let's get into we'll it, it then shall we yeah you join me to this one too? Sure, yeah okay, so.
2: I've got a passport stamp for this one.
0: Oh, oh wonderful. Just to go in line with the, the cover. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. You've definitely got us collectors in mind, you know. Oh, yeah.
2: No, I figure that, you know, if I'm going to physically sign a book, I might as well make it more than a scroll. But I've got this one as well. Would you like me? Yeah. Uh,
0: what's, oh, this is a different one. Thank.
2: Thank goodness that, insert name of person here, transcends national borders. And I can put your name Isn't in it. Isn't that
0: okay. great.
2: I went to um, a site called rubberstamps.com and I had myself some, yeah, sort of faux immigration stamps. Excellent. Really good.
0: Uh, really good. So you just order it off the uh, internet, yeah. eh? Yeah. What? Uh,
2: I've got a... Um,
0: wh- where, what's it called again?
2: It's called rubberstamps.com. Okay. Maybe it was .co.uk. Okay. Okay would you like permission to stay this is permission good to stay yes yeah. I'd love that please I'm going to get the <laughs> date right oh, I love that I keep myself entertained endlessly doing these things I do I, I do a lot of signings and yes I, and um oh, and I don't you... usually pull out the whole lot but it's quite good you know people have made the effort to come to your signing line and see you and if you can have a talk with them for a couple of minutes and yeah. give them some stamps and it's so quite fun and, and oh, for sure an experience for them as well the
0: I mean, mission to stay there we have it and we've got the date too yeah. I love it that's good um, yeah. thanks the yeah. uh, you know it it's, a lot of it has to do with the personality or inclination of the you know of the of the author like Gian uh, Quozia is renowned for being a real cold uh, Fish and really? not, not at all interested in. Uh, yeah. uh He's very difficult interview. That's why I, I, right. I, I just hope at some point in my career I'll be able to to uh, to meet with him. But, right. uh, but uh, <coughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, either way is you know I think it's great if you if you're if you enjoy it then yeah. I mean this is what the publishers want anyway they want their, sure, yeah. their, their their authors to get out and and yeah. hustle their. Their product. You know. Oh, I
2: really enjoy it. It's great. I think it yeah. keeps me honest as a writer. I mean, yeah. you can just tell. I mean, you do a reading, yeah, a real live reading, and you look, you check out, you know, how many of them have bought a copy at the end, and yeah, and see what well, that—that's the ultimate test of whether you're getting through to people. Yes, it, there's yeah. not nothing to hide behind. Then you can't say, well, the reviewers weren't didn't know what they were doing, or I didn't get enough press, or whatever. I mean, if, if you. If you're there in front of people at are reading and they laugh in the right places and come up and want to talk to you afterwards, it means you're, your your writing is good, yeah. And yeah. and if they if they don't, it means it isn't. and <laughs> you've got to try harder. So yeah. I, I really think it's good. And I always want to sort of keep that. Well, that's what's so neat about your I website can.
0: too. I mean, your website yeah. you're getting lots of feedback. Yeah, the,
2: the website is awesome, and yeah. that's because um, well, before I was a writer, I worked in the internet and. ran ran websites so I I do my I code my own website and run it myself and it's unbelievably important to me because that's um, some I mean I just I get you know 20 emails a day from people from all over the world it's fascinating it
0: it really is isn't it it's
2: just it's endlessly interesting
0: Uh, I'm with Uh, you and the other thing too is you if you you pay enough attention to a particular author you're going to hear from that author eventually you know and, uh... Yeah. What a
2: thrill. Yeah. Um... That's super cool. And the, uh... I mean, just uh, yesterday, this woman at the Reading at the harbour front. Yes. She baked a cake, right? She baked a cake for me. And Did she? she? Yeah, because she liked the website and she thought the stuff about the kids on it was really funny and it had appealed to her about, you know, her own kids. So she baked a cake. Yeah. She comes up with it and the signing line, gives me the cake, explains the cake to me. She's from Finland. Wow. And, uh... This morning I wake up and I've got an email from her, yeah. uh, explaining what the cake recipe was and how this flour was made in Finland. And it's like yeah. people are so interesting and they're really kind. So as yeah. They really uh, take the time to, I don't know, share a bit of their lives with you, and it makes you a better writer as well because you start to get an idea of where people's heads are at in the world. And you know, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's fun. I mean. It's not just um, it's not just a one-way thing being yeah. a writer. Like it's it not used like, to be. yeah, it's yeah. not broadcasting. You're also receiving.
0: Well, yeah, very m- yeah. very much solitary, but sort of schizophrenic in that sense because you've uh, you've got the, you know, on the road, yeah. you're you're you know sociable and, uh, and surrounded by people, and yet uh, yeah. you sort of hibernate and yeah. or disappear. So yeah. let me uh, introduce you, sure, yeah, and uh, and then. Uh, um let's discuss the book so
2: cool are we rolling
0: we're rolling here yeah chris cleave's debut novel incendiary incendiary
2: uh yep yeah, yep yeah. incendiary i, I had incendiary. Problems saying yeah, i was myself. Just trying to
0: think if there's a british or a can, you know, a can versus canadian pronunciation of it but incendiary that's good incendiary that good? yeah Won the 2006 Somerset Maugham Award, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writer's Prize, and was released as a feature film in 2008. He was born in London and spent his early years in Douala, Yeah. Cameroon. That's right. He studied uh, experimental psychology at Balliol College, Oxford, and has worked as a sailor, a journalist, and an internet person. He lives in the UK with his wife. And children, welcome to the bibliophile.
2: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: We're uh, here to talk about uh, your latest novel, entitled, which was shortlisted for the uh, Costa Novel Award. Uh, it's called Little B. At least over here, uh, here being North America. Um, get into. You, you work for the, You write for the Guardian.
2: Yeah, I write a column for the Guardian on uh, uh, every Saturday okay that's a column about my kids uh, okay
0: okay so it's not uh, you're not a political commentator then
2: no not at all i am um, i asked uh, i asked them what my brief ought to be and my editor wrote me back a, a one-line email saying uh, be funny about your kids idiot so <laughs> that's what i did and uh I, it's you know one of my favorite parts of the writing job i just observe uh, not just my own kids, but other other people's, you know, um, friends' kids, and uh, the funny things they say, and often the very revealing things they say. I, it's it's a lighthearted column, but I take it very seriously because you know, I think that those early childhood years are incredibly special and very revealing about you know society's attitudes to you know to growing up and how we how we train our children to be you know, little versions of us. Yeah, what that means? Yeah, I think it's yeah, I love it.
0: It's interesting uh, in Little B, uh, the uh, the 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 son who's uh, four or five, five years old. Mm -hmm. Um, Charlie uh, throughout most of the book wears a mask, a Batman mask, Um, and there's a line somewhere that talks about. Um, once you have given someone your real name, uh, that's, um, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly how it went, but it's, it's basically once you reveal your true name, a little B isn't her true name, uh,
2: there's a line that's, um, that talks about, you know, you have to really trust someone before you give them your real name, and right. that comes from, um, well, Little Bee's upbringing and the crisis that she's had in her part of Nigeria where um, she doesn't want to give her real name because that would speak quite loudly about um, her her particular ethnicity and her religious and tribal affiliations. So she takes this, this assumed name um, to, to protect herself and she won't um, let people know her real name until she really trusts them.
0: So she is es- she escapes from Nigeria and, uh, and an awful incident um, you want to talk about that sure yeah because I think it's uh, uh, in fact I wouldn't mind having you read it's 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 a very very powerful disturbing description of of, um, of a rape um,
2: There's some yeah, the the scene that um, the book hinges around is yeah, it's set on an African beach and it's very important for the book that the two main uh, protagonists, uh, Little B, the Nigerian girl, and Sarah, the English woman, um, they don't meet in the United Kingdom. They actually meet for the first time in Nigeria and that's really important because I wanted this to be An unusual story about refugees. I didn't want to stick to the tired formula, where you know here comes this parade of victims from sub-Saharan Africa uh, who arrive in the United Kingdom and are met by villainous you know immigration officials and do-gooding you know charity workers and uh, almost uh, they they come as an import, freshly packaged and uh, re. Digested in the UK. I wanted it to be. I wanted there to be much more jeopardy. I wanted there to be much more implication of the British character in the life of um, of the Nigerian character. And so, it's really important that they meet in Africa. Now, why is that? Because it's um, neutral. No, it's not neutral. um, No, it's because it's absolutely engaged. I mean, because there there is therefore a reason, and because of the circumstances of the meeting between Little B and Sarah. There's a reason for Sarah not just to give up on Little B, you know, because Sarah is actually involved in the situation from which Little B is escaping.
0: So she's she's, sexy she's not life. guilt-free. Yes, yeah, she does. Yeah,
2: uh, and that's you know that's really important um, to set up the book. And it's really important to um.
0: Although sorry to interrupt, yeah. but although we we aren't privy to that until about halfway through the book. The book starts right. off yeah. uh, with uh, Little B in the detention.
2: Yeah, that's right. The book starts off um, two years after the incident that brought Sarah and Little B together. And they slowly work their way back to it um, through flashbacks, really. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and, and alternating uh, their voices from yeah, chapter to chapter. exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. So Little B will tell one chapter and then Sarah will tell the next chapter. Mm-hmm. And they slowly work back through the whole first half of the book to the scene that brought them together. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like to do that in my writing I like to let people reveal themselves at a, at a natural speed mm-hmm. and I find that makes the characters more realistic if they if, if you meet someone in real life you'll learn very little about them the first time you meet them the second time they might reveal a little bit more and by the tenth time you meet them um, they might reveal the key that unlocks that, them as a person You know, once they trust you in a sense they'll tell you their real mm-hmm. name
0: well, and it's like Sarah uh, too. She wants yeah. to. Um, her her husband uh, commit suicide. She wants to cry, mm-hmm. but it's as if she needs Little Bee's story yeah. to unlock that.
2: Yeah, that's exactly. Breathing. They they can't even. The two women in the story can't even. Remind themselves about what happened to them because it was so traumatic mm-hmm. and yeah but collectively they can you know they can find the courage to address what happened and you know, that gets to the core of who they are as people and then they can move on
0: and also accepting yeah. each other too i mean i think sure. that's part of the they, they hardly know each other when little bee comes back uh, that's right uh, to her doorstep yeah. and uh, they
2: exchange very few words on their first meeting you know yeah. they don't know each other at all and slowly they do get to know each other, and and they like what they see, and they realise that they are joined together, and that there there isn't really anything they can do to escape from each other. Mm-hmm. They need each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, little B needs Sarah for survival, um, and Sarah needs Little B in order to address the residual guilt that she has and about the situation that they've lived through, and to deal with that. So they're kind of locked into that situation and i think that's the um that that gives the book its containment and its tension the fact they can't just walk away there's no there's no way they can leave that situation unresolved and they have to play it through to the end mm-hmm. i think charlie the um the little boy character is important for that as well i mean he's the book's emotional heart he he's our reason to care he's the reason that you know it would be very bad if these two women didn't work out Know, how how they were both going to survive um, because you know we care about Charlie and we want him to survive we want him to be happy mm-hmm. and so do the two women you know, and that gives that's another element that gives the book its containment and means it doesn't just sort of fizzle off.
0: There is a there is a, a theme of you know, happiness and how to attain it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and how
2: does one attain it then? <laughs> how does one attain happiness? A small question. Um, I, I think that the characters um, in this story are a long way from being able to ask themselves that question. Of, you know, how do they become happy? I think uh, little Bee is struggling for survival from the beginning of the book right through to the end. The only thing that she can do uh, is swim very hard against the current of, of life in order to survive. And she's swimming hard upstream the whole time and she hasn't even got to the point of asking herself whether she's happy. And Sarah, on the other hand, has gone way past the point uh, of asking herself whether she's happy. She's She's been given everything and she ought to be happy. Right? She's been given this terrific job mm-hmm. um, that she starts off being very proud of um, as, as a magazine, uh, yeah, editor. as a magazine editor in, in London, yeah. of, of an edgy magazine that she helped to found herself, yeah. you know, to make a difference in the world, to sort of ally journalistic values with you know entertainment features, you never know, punchy magazine. Yeah. Every every few years, one of those launches, yes, and you know about five years later, it's always become another fashion magazine, and yeah, you know, but and that's what's happened to her. She's become another fashion magazine. Yes, you no, know, she's. She started off with high principles, she was happy, um, she's, uh, she met her husband, <coughs> man, a man principle. that she loved a lot, mm-hmm. um, and it's all gone wrong for her, and, and it's gone wrong one compromise at a time, you know, as she's allowed you know, her own need to, for you know, physical comfort and financial security to sort of override her original programming, um, which was to, to make a positive difference in the world so she's, she's uh, little B hasn't arrived at the stage where happiness is possible yet and no it's and like Sarah a hierarchy of gone. needs
0: isn't it it's like uh, yeah. Maslow's uh, she's she's basically survival and yeah exactly
2: uh, yeah she's food and shelter
0: is what little B yeah. needs or Whereas, just staying yeah. alive yeah. because uh, because she's being chased yeah. by there's a line yeah. in here that's, that repeats itself about yeah. the men coming yeah um, because of what the men did to her sister yeah and basically, chased her out of Nigeria because she'd witnessed the slaughter of a th- the community that she lived in. That's right. Yeah.
2: yeah. She, um, uh, I think it's really interesting that that you use um, Maslow as um, uh, uh, that you use Maslow in reference to Little B. It's true; she's right down at the bottom of that of that pyramid of that hierarchy of needs. And, mm-hmm. and I think to pursue. Um, Maslow, you you get right up to the top of his pyramid. You get things like um, you know uh, ontological security and um, religion, and you know mm-hmm. these these very refined yeah, yeah notions of of what it takes to survive, I guess, as as a human. And to thrive
0: you in a fulfilling life. I, mean, sure. I think that's isn't yeah that the the angst the suburban yeah. angst yeah. that. Uh, that Sarah is and and Andrew her husband yeah. were were dealing with.
2: Yeah. But as 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 a sort of architectural construct that pyramid of needs implies a sort of stability over time that I don't think is relevant in you know our our sort of more decadent western societies and it implies that you get the thing built from the ground up mm. and then that's it you've achieved happiness and it's there. Mm. It implies that um, that it's a solid and unchanging thing, and I'd argue that yeah, you, um, Little Bee is definitely still building that pyramid, but Sarah has built it and it's crumbled, yeah. and uh, because you know it's not it's not the perfect metaphor Maslow's um, no. uh, hierarchy for for this very modern uh, sort of relativist existence that we have. Well, you know, you you, you chase. These mirages of happiness, and when you arrive, you realise that they weren't there. And yet, you know, it's not vain and foolish to chase these things because there isn't actually anything else to do. Yeah, you know, we don't actually need to go out and plant cassava. We, uh, we do have to seek some kind of higher ideal, and, and that's yet, what Sarah's doing. She, that's she, what she's, she's doing. She's and looking and for it, and she never finds it.
0: And well, she's doing it, but she's also. Um, there's another need, a sexual need, that yeah. uh, a need for excitement, sure, uh, yeah. that she indulges by having yeah. a, an affair, yeah. um, and that's as but as basic a need as uh, as food and water or close to it. So as you say, that mm. pyramid is uh, is constant. So it's sort of a sieve, or a yeah, nicely put. Force, yes, it
2: ca- she cascades back down yes. to the bottom of it all yeah. the time, and
0: as as do most of us.
2: Yeah. I'm. I often get accused of uh, only writing about adulterous women in my books, <laughs> and it's like, you know, that's um, it's kind of an accident, really, rather than um, any particular concept that I that I'm trying to express there. Yeah. Uh, but I, I I definitely write about people who are in transition, and all my work, you know, novels and short stories, it's all about um, someone to whom something life-changing has just happened Mm -hmm. and the pieces are still falling when I pick up their story and they are always trying to rebuild themselves and these transitional people that I'm interested in um, reveal um, stuff about ourselves and one of the symptoms of being in transition is you know a sexual adventurousness you know uh, an infidelity if you like Mm. But that's just well, one. It, it, of, that's it. one of the symptoms of what these people are doing. Because actually, if you look at my work, they're also um, changing their, uh, the place where they live. They're also changing their jobs. They're also changing their entire outlook on life. So it's just one component, and I think. Um, uh, but I do think it's a very revealing component. I and mean, when people are unhappy, actually, one of the very first things they do is have an affair. Yeah, you know, they'll probably have an affair before they'll consider changing their job. Mm-hmm. And you don't change your whole life at once. You, you change, you know, your partner, your job, your place of living, you know, your friendship network, you know, your set of philosophical beliefs. And once you've done those five things, then you're a new person. But no yeah. one does it all at once.
0: No, um, and that having an affair yeah. is probably the easiest of those.
2: It's, it's exactly. the easiest, yeah. And, and most and people. That's the most exciting. I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe it's definitely. I agree. It's definitely the easiest. Yeah, probably the most exciting, and it's also, in many ways, the most reversible. Uh, well, you can, if you, that if you fact... change your job, you have to formally resign and go yeah. to a new job, and you, you, know, you hear of very few people who cheat on their jobs, because yeah. guess what, people are watching. You know, you can't yeah. you can't go to the office next door and actually start working there for a bit without formally resigning, burning your bridges, and moving to the next one. Whereas actually, yeah. um, human relationships are a little more forgiving.
0: Well, like in you fact, can, don't they go to uh, they go to Nigeria? The, the, the yeah, couple they,
2: they want to patch it up. They go to Nigeria up. to patch exactly. up their relationship. Yeah. And you know, the chances are that if the cataclysmic thing hadn't happened on the beach, then then the story of Sarah and Andrew would be just one more suburban story of a couple who um, had a few marital difficulties a few years back, but patched them up. Mm. And that's what people do. I mean, quite often people will get themselves right to the brink of the precipice. Frighten themselves and then come back. Mm. No, I've. Um,
0: but then there's trust too, which is so difficult to rebuild. Sure, yeah, and it, and trust gets to the core. Another sort of a theme that you you deal with that we touched on. Yeah, and that is 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 revealing yourself. Yeah, feeling comfortable enough to actually reveal yourself.
2: Yeah, most yeah. people never get to that point yeah. with their partners. I'm convinced of this. I mean, most. I I'm I'm amazed when. You know, couples who are in their 70s suddenly <coughs> divorce mm-hmm. or, or, or realise something about the other person. And I'm, I'm amazed how many layers of secrets are contained in even the most apparently um, easy-to-explain lives. And uh, that's, what, well, that's what I love about being a writer, is that you can peel back the layers of people and get closer and closer to something that explains them explains who they are yeah and explains why people are so strong and resilient you know people aren't completely plastic people do have a a real course that they're setting through life often you can't really work out what that course is until you've known them for a long time yeah or even as an
0: individual you can't really you don't see a pattern until you've actually lived it and looked back on it
2: sure yeah. Oh, yeah. We narrate our own stories in, in retrospect. You know. Yeah. We would glorify ourselves and glamorize ourselves and, and organize
0: ourselves. And exactly. Yeah. And
2: organize ourselves. Yeah. We, we the, and you don't know, you know, whether what we're living now will, in the future narrative of our lives, be considered to be a harmless back eddy, or whether that will be narrated as you know one of the major currents of our life. And, yeah. 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 You know, we. I think you're exactly right. We make sense of it in retrospect.
0: Well, the interesting thing too about storytelling, and uh, you make the point uh, first of all that uh, I think it's a, it's a very good, interesting point that that these these uh, people who are seeking asylum, they they uh, as opposed to a novelist, it's life and death for them. They have to get that story and tell it in such a way that it's believable right. for them to live or to to be accepted or to yeah. stay in, in in England in this yeah. case. Otherwise they get sent back to a death sentence.
2: Too right, yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, as a storyteller, I'm completely in awe of the ability of people with a real story to tell it. Right. Well, um, a real motivation yes. to yeah. tell it yeah
0: in a way that's believable. Yeah. Yeah. What's well,
2: the Shahrazad thing or you know, it's this idea that you know you're literally gonna die. Yes. <laughs> if yes. you don't if you don't get this story told till the end and in a convincing way. Yeah. Um, that you know, I've I've met people who have only survived because they managed to convince people um, of of what had happened to them, yeah. and there's there's um, for example, if you're a, a refugee, um, an asylum seeker, you come to the UK, uh, your asylum application is going to be heard by you know a fairly junior um, civil servant who's had some training. Um, you know they might be able to recognise you know or point to four different African countries on a map in the right order. Um, they may have some concept of what refugees from sub-Saharan Africa have gone through. Um, but there will be a, there's generally a climate of disbelief. Yes. Um, their stories aren't generally believed. That's how you know, these officials are trained to not believe the yeah. stories and to yes, assume that any document you have is false, yeah. any story you have is inflated. And so you, know, you come as a woman who's been raped. right? You might, have, you might not want to tell that story right you might not want to uh, you certainly might not want to tell it to a spotty young man from the british home office right who doesn't mm-hmm. believe you and mm-hmm. is openly mocking you mm-hmm. right yeah. and so in in the face of that climate you have to tell a story make the other person sympathize with you and make them believe you mm-hmm. um of, of, of the truth of your life i mean those those people who have their asylum applications accepted, have succeeded in telling the story.
0: They're and survivors. They're, aren't survivors. They, they're the and ones it's, who are yeah. most, as you say, most resilient, most mm. uh, imaginative, most intelligent, most exactly. resourceful.
2: Yeah, yeah. not only have they arrived at the point of being able to tell their story, but they've told their story in a way that has enabled them to survive. Right. So they're, they're incredible people. I mean, a, a, An asylum seeker who's come from you know, one of the conflicts like the one I describe in the book well, quite often they've walked across huge tracts of Africa through other war zones and they might have arrived in... Um, OK, if, uh, a really interesting source book for this is um, called Human Cargo, uh, A really? Journey Among Refugees by mm-hmm. um, Caroline Moorhead and she, she talks about how people you know walk or get amazing... Uh, sort of odysseys that they have across africa and they often get to somewhere like cairo which is a big sort of clearing house for refugees and they might work a menial job there for years in order to save up enough money to pay a smuggler um to take them into southern europe and you know they they better choose the right smuggler as well because Mm -hmm. a lot of them will will literally take the money and then throw the refugees into the sea as soon as they get offshore and so you need to not only be hugely resilient hugely patient hugely determined but you need to be a great judge of character mm-hmm. right? even before you get to the uk at which point you need to be very good at telling your story mm-hmm. so as a novelist you know i who, you know i tell stories i'm interested in the structure of stories and the voice that people use and the way they present themselves
0: and you get so you've got an of them and, you, you, and you've, you've been able to interview a lot of these great storytellers? Well, um, not, part
2: of the not, not, not many, no. actually. Um, I didn't interview many uh, refugees and asylum seekers. What I mostly um, did was, was spoke with people who work with them. Okay. Um, my favourite interview, actually, was with a, a developmental psychiatrist okay. who actually interviews the children that we detain. We, you know, we, we detain children um, who've committed no crime you know, who've come from a war zone, who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. Well, we put them in prison. Um, and the most revealing interview I had was actually with the psychiatrist who works with these children. Mm. Um, that's right, that's one of the concerns being, uh, too,
0: isn't it? That yeah. the children are being... I mean, there's a couple of others too. There's a profit motive that, uh, that's involved in the detention centres that are run by uh, private sector. That's right,
2: yeah. This yeah. is. I was really shocked to discover this, and most people are shocked when they discover it. Um, and this is why
0: you've written the novel then is it based, it's sort of based on you, you're shocked and you want other people to be as shocked so that what eventually there'll be a groundswell to mm. change the system, I assume well, that's an ultimate I,
2: objective um, no, I don't I don't write because I think I can change anything I, think, I, I write because I believe in the truth of stories, I believe in the emotional truth of them And I believe that you can do something in fiction that you don't have the space to do in print news.
0: Although you could have done it in a print... You could have done it in a non-fiction book.
2: I could have done. um, But there are a lot of good non-fiction books about refugees. Mm. And um, none of them get the readership that they deserve. And it doesn't... you know, People who are already interested in... In the idea of a refugee, will go out and buy a book about them. But most people aren't. Most people's eyes glaze, o- uh, glaze over yeah. when you say the when you say asylum seeker. Yeah. And actually, their stories are the most interesting stories on earth. And by definition, these are the people who who transgress, who who cross boundaries that shouldn't be crossed. Um, emotionally in
0: that sense. Yeah.
2: I mean. They're incredible people, and I, I wanted to tell the story through fiction because I think that it has an emotional truth to it that's more compelling. And uh, what so, I, I don't want to. I don't think I can change things, but I, I think um, what I can do is make people interested in these people again because we've lost interest in the most interesting people on earth. I think that's tragic. I think it's a monument to our hubris. Uh, we We've become so insular and we're, we're watching pallid imitations of life on reality television um, rather than looking outwards and seeing what, who are actually the most interesting people. I'm just trying to make them interesting again. And then it's up, to, it's up to readers, it's up to people, you know, what they do with the information. But I'm just saying, guess what? These people are fascinating. Mm-hmm. And we should be more interested in their fates. And we certainly shouldn't be treating them as some kind of cash crop. That we can detain for 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 our own pleasure and satisfaction, and for the profit of you know secretive multinational organisations who run these detention centres for profit. Um,
0: so it's, it seems that like so, there's a misalignment yeah. of uh, you know the general public, as you said, is, is fascinated by this shit that you see on on television, these these, these reality TV mm. shows where people are stuck on desert islands and. Yes, they're trying to survive. Yeah. uh, When they're they're what they're they're ignoring or they're misplacing their their awe or their respect or their attention or they're
2: just wasting their time. I mean, it's just absolute onanism. It's. Mm unbelievable what people are interested in on television and I just think that but they um, are though I
0: think that's the sad point you can't really force them to be oh no
2: I'm not not what you're doing is
0: using a you can persuade them you can
2: persuade and this is my whole thing about being a storyteller you can Mm. persuade people to open up a little bit more and um, I think if you give people interesting stories then they will come to them Mm. you know people aren't dumb they They're just fed crap uh, to the point where they've uh come to accept that as normal mm. and actually you know nearly everyone I meet is fantastic and better than that and and could be having more fun in their lives if they opened them up if they opened themselves up to more stuff you know so i don't i'm not i'm not being i hope i'm not being patronizing when I say that stuff on t v is a bunch of a bunch of crap because, well I just think it is and i think people are i think people are better than that i think readers deserve better than that certainly mm-hmm. and i i'm trying to give them stories that are about real life that i'm so committed to realism i'm so committed to saying well look you know let's not forget that reality is interesting let's not forget that there are people out there who have lives that are indescribably different from our own and from whom we could learn Instead, we lock them up and send them back to their deaths. You know what a what a terrible, terrible indictment on us. You know, how how difficult that will be to explain. You know to our children if we don't stand up and try and resist that in some way now.
0: Nicely put. I'm speaking with uh, Chris Cleave, who is the author of um, Little Bee, uh, published in. Canada by...
2: Oh, by Bond Street Books.
0: Bond Street Books. And in the States... It's just part of Random House. Yes. Yes, okay. Um, I want to... Uh, I want to look at... Uh, um... Well... I guess... Um
2: incidentally I thought the um, the point you made about the reality TV shows that involve surviving in a desert island situation I, th- I think you made that point really well and that's that's the um, the archetypal um, idiotic show and th- it's the worst possible um, message to to watch about our own cultural values in a world where you know millions of people go to bed hungry every night because they are desperately fighting for survival. I mean, it's extraordinary. Why not turn the camera outwards? Why are we endlessly filming our own genitalia as, as a society, you know? It's it's perverse. I don't know. I hope
0: this isn't Jennifer because how much time we have. We had... Uh, Time is flying by so fast. Um, okay. Um, maybe we could, have,
2: I, have I been ranting again?
0: No, no, you haven't been <laughs> ranting. No, no, not at all. Sorry, um, Nigel.
2: Okay, well, sometimes when I, when I get into one, it's hard to stop me.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, I just want to wrap up then with, uh, um, it seems to me that what you're trying to do is, is, um, Extend the audience, or mm. for a, a serious topic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you're using
0: yeah. fiction and your storytelling yeah. skills as a way of getting people to think about important, serious topics. That's really
2: nicely put. Yeah, simple as that. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to say that yeah, real life is interesting, mm-hmm. and if if you if you assume that that your readers are smart, which I do, um, then it lets you write um, at a really high level and enjoy it and make it fun and exciting and compelling. And that literary fiction should be exciting and it should be something that everyone wants to read.
0: Well, it should also, I think, uh, provide uh, um, some sort of moral uh, life lesson as well.
2: Oh, oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm definitely not trying to... Provide a moral lesson. Or I'm, I'm trying to provide a, an example of, of a life lived in extreme situations. And then the reader, yeah, I mean, it presents, a, I definitely present a moral challenge, hmm. right? And then, but but there's no lesson that I draw from it. And I don't.
0: You I, don't, but I think that you, yeah. you, you bring, you, it, it's required on the part of the reader once they've read this book. To think seriously about yeah what the, what they're doing in a world where this sort of activity takes place yeah, absolutely. or not doing.
2: Absolutely. I, I mean, my challenge, I guess, to the reader is to say, well, look, this is an issue in which you can't declare yourself to be a non-combatant, right? The, uh, we live in a world where you, you have to engage now and you have to choose a side. You, know, you have to choose um, the you have to choose compassion, or you have to choose closure. Are you going to close yourself off to the world and say, "Okay, my, uh, you know, I'm okay, my family are okay, and screw everyone else," or are you going to take a more long-term view and say, oh, "I actually care about my children's world too"? In which case, we've got to start to work out um, some of the differences that we have between the so-called developed world and the so-called developing world, because guess what? At the moment, that gulf isn't getting any narrower. Um, and I, I, I think it's an issue on which you can't be neutral and I think you can only be neutral if you're really ignoring the issue and I don't think it's safe to ignore anymore so that's um I, 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 I like to get people to engage with it
0: very good well you certainly got me engaged with it and I, and I wish you uh, all the best of luck in getting uh, millions of others engaged
2: thank you uh, that's Thanks. great well I just hope they'll enjoy it if they read it really I mean that's and I think we should turn this into a
0: movie. I mean, I really do. I can, say, I can see it right now. And speaking of ways yeah. of getting larger audiences to to look at this serious sure. sort of issue, I mean, I, that's I'd
2: be delighted. You know, if someone wants to make a movie of it, I'd be delighted. I'm talking to a couple of people at the moment, mm-hmm. and if that happens, that's great. But for for me, I'm going to stick to writing novels because that's the thing. You know, that's the thing I love. I, I like I, I like the connection that I have with readers. I like the um, the, just the technicalities of putting a novel together fascinate me. Mm-hmm. I love doing the research, and then I love the, the, you know the, the mechanism of a novel and yeah. how intricate it is. And I love going to my shed and tinkering with <laughs> it until it works. You know, that's you know I'm going to stick with writing novels. I just love it. Very good. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. Okay.
0: Great. Ugh. Yeah, that's I mean, a I could process. see. Uh, good interview yeah I wish we'd had longer no me too I uh, just had no idea the time was flying <laughs> so I thought too bad uh, maybe next time yeah. Um, yeah so thank you very much for inviting me great to pleasure to your
2: home which is beautiful no thank you yeah, I love your library thank it's you Yeah, really, really good yeah, yeah I keep my
0: collectibles in the bedroom it's just yeah, uh, it's yeah but um, that's yeah, yeah. alright you Robert Rulon Miller is the proprietor of Rulon Miller Books based in Minneapolis. No, based in based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Based in St. Paul, Minnesota, the company specializes in rare, fine, and interesting books in many fields: first editions, Americana, literature, fine and early printing, travel, and the history of language. Um, Mr. Rulon Miller started in the antiquarian bookselling business by working for his father started in the antiquarian bookselling business when he was a student working uh, for his father we pick up the conversation when he decides to leave his father in Rhode Island and set up shop in St. Paul, Minnesota. Well thanks very much for taking the time to give us some background on your life as a rare antiquarian bookseller and advice on how to collect and advice and collecting advice well thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us about your life as an antiquarian bookseller and to provide us with uh, collecting advice. I've been speaking with Robert Rulon Miller who is the proprietor of Robert who is the proprietor of Rulon Miller Books based in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis. So I'm gonna uh, stick this over here. Okay. You do these sorts of things too, right? You've got you. you I noticed you did uh, you did t- a TV or a video. Yeah,
3: we've done two, and then our third one is Grant coming out on the new issue that goes up on Monday. Yeah. Okay. This is sort of fun. This is something new to do.
0: It's true, isn't it? It's, yeah. uh, well, first of all, let's start off with uh, Jessa Crispin is. The host. How would you like to describe yourself? Editor and founder. Editor and founder.
3: It sounds way more professional that For way. For sure
0: it does. <laughs> yeah. Well, plus you're a producer and a host. Yes. Uh, and a
3: blogger and uh, you know tap dancer. I don't know other things. Yeah.
0: Okay. Welcome to the bibliophile. Thank you. <laughs> um. Okay. So, we. You are living your dream. All right. Are
3: you? Um, I guess. I suppose so. Um, this was all very unintentional and very accidental and not what I wanted to do with my life, honestly. Um, and Th- not this, that I'm complaining.
0: Just being. Books left. The books left, yeah. Okay. And Which I'm not
3: complaining at all. I'm extremely grateful for everything, and this is all wonderful and lovely. But it really wasn't sort of what I planned to do, or wanted to do, really.
0: But you're doing it, and you're happy doing it? Yes. Very happy doing yes. it? Yes. Okay. And it doesn't get much better than that in a human life, I don't think. Right. Okay. Okay, I should have phrased it differently then. Um, okay, so. If you could briefly tell us what Bookslet is,
3: it is an online literary website um, that has a daily blog and then a monthly magazine, which has features and reviews and yeah, the traditional sort of uh, I guess review section kind of stuff.
0: Okay. Are you making any money?
3: I am making enough. To um, live, and buy food, um, and books, and books. Even Um, though you get a lot of them for free. Yes, I do. But although I still buy, I still you know go out drinking, come home, and go on Amazon and make some regrettable decisions there. But the one-click shopping is just—it's too easy. Yeah. Um,
0: Which is the key behind their success.
3: Yeah. So, Bookslut, well, it's, I should say uh, that it's bookslet plus freelance writing, that
0: okay. um, yep.
3: Bookslut does not alone support me.
0: Okay, that was my next question. How are you making the money, if you don't mind? Uh, this is a very American, I'm not American, I'm Canadian, but I, I hate to be so materialistic in this line of questioning, but I want to, it, it really is, uh, I think, something that a lot of people are really interested in. Monetizing yeah. their not dreams, but putting into living a life that they really would love to to live and earning a living doing it. Right. That's what. That's why I'm going in this direction.
3: That's fine. Um, advertising. That's how we make money.
0: So, uh, publishers.
3: Publishers, writers, um, writing programs at colleges. Um, sometimes movies, like if it's an ad- adaptation of a book, we get some movie ads. Um, so yeah, it's sort of anything that's slightly related to writing or books.
0: And are these sort of banner ads, or
3: actually, I we um, I don't know how we managed to do this, but we have managed to avoid the common problems with web advertising because usually web ads are you know they grow bigger they make noise or they dance or something and that's yeah. really annoying distracting and, yeah and I think at, before we even took an ad we had like a thing up on the website that said we will not accept flash ads we will not accept ads that make noise nothing that floats anything
0: <laughs> yeah. and
3: so the advertisers have complied with that um
0: but so specifically what would what do you do you sell like a a little bookmark, for example, size thing on the side of.
3: Yeah, it's like one hundred and fifty by two hundred, which is also an ad size. that doesn't exist outside of bookslet apparently, because oh. usually ad dimensions are much much larger, um, and they take up a full screen size, either along the top or down the side. Yeah. And I was just like, no, I'm not doing that. So.
0: And what do these ad do? These ads. Uh, appear when certain content appears no they're or static they're static okay and they re- and they 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 revolve
3: uh once a month yeah
0: so you sell by the just month just that one mm-hmm. that that one space that's it
3: yeah once a month yeah because and I can't be bothered to, <laughs> to do it any more than that yeah
0: you know? and you get I guess you've got a rate card. Is it like a thousand bucks a month or?
3: It's, uh, well, it depends on size and ha- how many. You can break it down to just the blog or just reviews or just, you know. Um, so the full site banner ad, which is the largest one, is six fifty a month. And then it goes down from there.
0: And you're able to justify that by showing what kind of, st- like, where do you get the stats from?
3: Oh, from my server or whatever, they do a breakdown.
0: They do a breakdown. Mm-hmm. And and they'll present that you present that to it or provide no, that?
3: No, we just tell them what the averages are.
0: And what are the averages? Uh
3: eight to nine thousand unique visitors a day. A day. Mm-hmm.
0: Has that gone up in the last year or two years or what's the story?
3: Uh it creeps up. Um, it's
0: kind of a loyal base that's yeah, we established
3: itself. Oh, yeah. Depends, um you know, on what we're doing and what month it is and, you know, all sorts of wonderful little ticks.
0: When you think of it though, that's really quite impressive because if it's, uh, if If it's eight to nine thousand a day, you know, a magazine may have thirty or thirty thousand let's say for the month.
3: Yeah, I mean, we have, I think it breaks down to two hundred thousand unique visitors a month. So, you know, some people come back, some people only, you know, whatever. Uh
0: How did you get such a great uh, number?
3: I have no idea. I mean, we've never advertised...
0: It's just content and word of mouth then? Yeah. Wow. Well,
3: yeah.
0: So you must be doing something right.
3: I must be doing something right.
0: What, what do you think it is?
3: I have really great people that write for Bookslet. I think that's part of it. And then the rest, I don't know. I mean, I... I
0: well, what do you mean really great? Like, w- w- they, they write well. They write with intelligence and humor and...
3: Yeah, and they're very, you know, they're very smart, they're very lovely people, all of them, they're all, you know...
0: Which, which you, can f- you can feel and experience through their writing, I guess.
3: Yeah, and I think it's also that we just don't cover what everybody else is covering, you know, we tend to write about people nobody else is writing about, or write about books that nobody else is writing about.
0: Books that you think are really good, but that just don't get mainstream coverage. Yeah. Okay. Like what?
3: Um, well, like my favorite book last year was Metropole by Corinthy. I'm going to go ahead and assume that's how you say his name. He's huh. dead. He won't mind. Um, and it got... His added. relatives might mind. His relatives... They're in Hungary, so I think I'm safe. Okay. Um, really didn't get any major review attention. There were a couple little reviews, but that's about it. Um, and so I reviewed it for NPR, and mentioned it on the blog, and wrote about it on the blog, and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, and that tends to be the way we operate, is just, I I have a stable of writers that um, I trust, and I let them write about whatever they want to write about, and it tends to be uh, a lot of work in translation. Yeah. We have a lot of poetry reviewers right now, and uh, you know a really great poetry columnist, um, Elizabeth Bachner, who is a feature writer and a reviewer, is just absolutely incredible. I think she's so smart and so interesting. Um, and Barbara J. King, who does anthropology pieces once a month. Um, so it really is just a wide range of. It's basically whatever I'm interested in and if I'm interested in it, I assume that there's somebody out there who would also be interested in it.
0: You're sounding like a novelist. Novelists Am I? <laughs> write write for themselves because they haven't found uh, they haven't found what they want. Yeah. So they write it themselves. That's
3: kind of that's yeah. kind of what bookslet's all about for me.
0: Okay. So it's successful. Uh, and with book review sections shrinking and uh, despite I guess there's, there's more online coverage by the mainstream media yeah do you think it's going to continue to like are you tracking upwards or uh, you've got an established base Is where do you where do you see this all sort of playing playing out the shrinking of
3: do you mean for books or for like the internet in I, th- I think both um i don't know i mean it's not something that i really think about
0: <laughs> no i mean you're um, you're an artist
3: <laughs> i don't um I okay. mean, I assume, I mean, nature abhors a vacuum and other wonderful clichés that we can throw around. Um, I think by the energi- way, sorry, do you yeah. like
0: my striped socks?
3: I do like your striped socks.
0: Thank you. <laughs> I take a lot of pride in these. Okay, sorry? Um,
3: I forgot what I was saying.
0: That was the intention.
3: Um, the energy has to go somewhere, you know? I mean, if you take it away from print, people aren't going to stop wanting to, I mean, you know, this whole thing about the internet is killing books. I mean, you know, TV did not kill radio, it just made it different. Um, so I think that people who say that reading is dead or is dying or whatever, are just lazy thinkers and um, need to shut up, I would appreciate it if they would. Okay. So I think the energy is going to go online because that seems to be where it's...
0: Well, it's appreciated. I mean, really... Yeah. You yeah. Do, you do find a lot of passion, people who are passionate about, about books Yeah. and free to say as little or as much about what they love as, as they wish.
3: And people online, I mean it's, you know, everything online is sort of niched out so you don't have to worry about a editor sort of making decisions about a section he knows nothing about, you know, that he wants to broaden the appeal and make it, you know, totally safe and boring. Yeah, yeah. Online, you can do whatever, you know, do whatever you want.
0: Yeah. Well, it always has been about content. It always has been about the integrity of the content. Yeah. And the voice. Yeah. Okay, so... We are... Um, We're at we're at a stage right now. that do you, do you feel like we're at a some sort of a turning point where the, the traditional um, structure of, of the media mm-hmm. is being really uh, torn apart, mm-hmm. and and bloggers are are an important factor. Behind this, yeah. So, is there going to be? A, I know this is another advertising question, but is it? Do, do you do you see, from your experience, people that typically have advertising money? Do you think they're going to, you know, chop it up and fragment it and pay attention to lots of different blogs? Well, as yeah, they're going to have to.
3: I mean, that's where the readers are, and that's where loyal readers are. So. I yeah. think it if they don't, then they're being really foolish, on the other hand, I can totally understand why advertisers have shied away from the online world because there's no such thing as loyalty on in the online world you know like people or there shouldn't be um,
0: loyalty in terms of the readership
3: well you mean you know like vogue. There was this big article in the New York Times about Vogue, about how it's so boring because it cowtows to its advertisers, where all the fashion that's in the magazine is bought, that space is bought by advertisers.
0: The, 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 ed, ad, the editorial is basically advertorial.
3: Yeah, and so the uh, online is not that way. I mean, you can it, advertise... It's, well, it's
0: not that way, but there's a big concern about that, because there's a ton of sites that are coming up that, that are funded... By entities other than the blogger themselves,
3: right? Yeah, but I mean, even something like Gawker, which takes ads from absolutely everybody, you c- you see them eviscerating the ads, calling yeah. them foolish and stuff like yeah. that, and, which and annoying. Which I can understand straight. why advertisers are, you know, hesitant to get to dive into that world. But they're going to have to get over it and stop being precious sensitive.
0: But you've only got so much space to sell on your site, and you've already sold it. Yeah. So what are you going to do?
3: It's enough, you know. I am not greedy. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, so with the early success, uh, maybe you could tell us when you started it up. I mean, this is a, um, you were you were involved in the feminist movement?
3: Yeah, of working at Planned Parenthood.
0: And then you, and you always had a passion for books, I assume. Yeah. Um, and then you had a, you found a venue to share this enthusiasm.
3: Right. Well, sort it was, um, I was working at Planned Parenthood and, uh, I got- In Chicago? No, in Austin. Oh, okay. And I got really bored because I got moved to fundraising and uh, I do not do well in fundraising because I am surly, and so they would hide me away, and I had nothing to do.
0: Surly and honest.
3: Surly and honest. I have very, very difficult time hiding my contempt. So Which they, is
0: why your blog is so successful, I,
3: I suppose. Finally, it's paying off, but, um, but at the time, it was not seen as an asset to my job at fundraising. So I didn't really <laughs> have anything to do except for updating the database. And, uh, and the person who had that job before me was an idiot, and it took him eight hours a day, and it took me, you know, one hour a day, and I just had an enormous amount of time. Is,
0: is, is the fact that he was a male, did that have anything to do with it?
3: The fact that he was, a, no, he was just sort of an idiot in general. Okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so, I really just started the blog because I needed to kill something.
0: On the job.
3: And uh, what I had been doing, which I realized was probably horrifically annoying, was I um, would just, you know, Google writers' names and then email the links to an interesting interview or something that I found to my sister or my friend or something, because I was just bored out of my skull. And then uh, my boyfriend at the time started a blog. And it was really boring. It was horrifically boring, and I thought I could do better than that.
0: So he's your ex-boyfriend. Yes, he's my ex-boyfriend. Because he didn't think it was boring.
3: Uh, well, there are many reasons he's my ex-boyfriend, but um, he uh, he was the webmaster for Bookslet for for a long time.
0: What how how much? Just a long time.
3: Um, let's see. We broke up three years ago and he continued doing it for like a year after we broke up. So four years.
0: Okay, Okay, so he was the the webmaster, he he sort of had a, he he didn't know how to write interesting blogs but he knew the technology. Yes. And that helped you. And
3: he designed the site, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, Okay, and so you just got right into it then?
3: Yeah. Well I just started blogging. And then I just sent the link to uh, my sisters and a handful of friends, and then other people started reading it. The
0: the link to your site?
3: Yeah.
0: Okay. To my blog.
3: Yeah. Right.
0: Now, it's interesting, when you look at different blogs, There's there's there are blogs that uh, that are typically more considered. They, they, they'll they take a, a topic and they'll write uh, a thousand words on it, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then there are other blogs that simply link and then have a often a caustic or a humorous or a remark attached to that link. Mm-hmm. So what you've done is, you've sort of done both.
3: Yeah, sort of. Right. Mostly just caustic, but... Um,
0: the blog is pure caustic. Yeah. The other side, the the, the quote oh, magazine, yeah, the magazine side, yeah. is more considered. Yeah. Okay.
3: But that didn't come until uh, a couple months after. After what? After the blog started.
0: Oh, that's pretty soon after.
3: Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, February and then May, and I think it was just... About a month after I started the blog, I got an email from somebody in Hungary. Maybe it was had uh, descendants, I'm not sure.
0: Well, maybe it was him.
3: Maybe. He was dead by then, so it's unlikely. Um, so uh, I got an email, and I thought that was the strangest thing, because I had not assumed that anybody outside of uh, my family was reading it. And
0: That must I, have given you a real buzz.
3: Well, it freaked me out.
0: What, that someone else in Hungary is reading your stuff?
3: Yeah, because I I, I was like, well, I should probably do something that's not boring if somebody else is reading it. You know, it's fine if I can bore my sister. She loves me. She has to read it. But, um, if it, if other people, I should probably put some effort into it. So that's when I started thinking about, okay, well, if you can do anything you want online.
0: Within reason.
3: Right what what should we do so it was a lot of like 2 a.m. after the bars closed sobering up over grilled cheese sandwiches between me and my friend Michael Schaub uh, trying to figure out what we would do
0: and so you've just simply taken advantage of the technology that allows you sort of direct access to an audience Mm -hmm. and you've combined the blog the blog with a more traditional Form of communication. Right, yeah. That's what you've done. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what gave you the biggest thrill then?
3: When Neil Gaiman linked to my blog about six months into it, that really freaked me out too, though. I, I had mixed emotions about that excitement and sheer terror.
0: Why the terror?
3: Uh, Because then it's the potential for Neil Gaiman to think uh, I am an idiot. So what? Uh, I really like him. He's very nice. He's got that nice British accent. He's very handsome. Um, You know, various reasons.
0: So it's sort of a sexual thing.
3: (laughs) Um, uh, The wish uh, to be attractive. Uh, well, not so much as not to think that uh, somebody to think that I'm uh, an idiot.
0: Someone you respect, you don't Some, yeah. you don't mind if other if, idiots think you're an idiot. I
3: don't mind if most people think I'm an idiot. The but, people that I respect, I would rather they not think I was an idiot. Right. I know that it's inevitable, and there are probably many who think that I am. But I, you know, you just gotta go with what you do.
0: Neil Gaiman, yeah, that's good. You know, it's funny. I was just in Minneapolis, and I truck because he lives around there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, his publicist didn't get back to me, so that's it. He can beg.
3: He's a he's a he's it's a nice not man. You should give him another shot. He's very nice. He's per- he's put up with a lot of shit from us over the years. You know, he's been willing to sit down for interviews and all sorts of nonsense with us. So.
0: So when he linked, then that was a huge thrill, yes. and then what happened, you thanked him for linking?
3: No, it was even worse, because I had been told about it by um, my ex-boyfriend. Is it uh, the same one or no? no? different one, uh, ex at the time even, boyfriend. Uh, he, he told me about it, and then he sent me an email that he had gotten from Neil, because Juan, the ex emailed him and said, oh, by the way, you met this girl Cause six months before that or something like I met him at a convention and I was um, unable to form sentences I'm not sure I even got my name out I was mostly staring at the carpet and blushing and, uh, and Neil wrote back, oh I remember her so then the horror of now Neil Gaiman not only maybe thinks I'm an idiot, but thinks I'm incapable of speech as well so really there was that whole thing was painful (laughs) wow yeah it was a bit much
0: so uh, you've have you taken care of this self-esteem problem yet have you dealt with that
3: I it only comes up with him I don't know what it is but I think maybe a revert back to the first time that I met him but literally for I he lives nearby We've been at the same events, we run into each other every once in a while, and every time I turn into a goddamn idiot, and he laughs at me, and he makes fun of me, and it's, you know, painful. (laughs) Wow. Yeah.
0: Must be nice to have that kind of power over women.
3: Yeah. It's not just me. I mean, many, many women have problems with talking verbal communication around Neil Gaiman. Wow. Yeah.
0: Uh okay. So that was a thrill. Yeah. And a stepping stone. Yeah. Did you interview him then or?
3: No, it took me years before I could
0: do Have you done that though? Yeah, twice. Okay. Great, okay. So what about access? first of all you you basically took the blog and then and then you started to realize that you could actually go and talk to people yeah and interview them for your site mm-hmm. so you actually this is how I feel I've had access to some of the greatest authors living authors and it's it's so to, to be able to have... First of all, they're more accessible than you might have thought. Is that? Yeah. And that's yeah. because, I suppose, the media doesn't pay that much attention to authors? Is that what you, why do you think that is?
3: Oh, they also seem really friendly. I think that's it. They're friendly. They don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and say no, maybe.
0: <laughs> There's that self-esteem thing coming in. <laughs> um, okay, so... They, uh, so you set the blog up and then you deci- when you set it up, you decided, well, wait a minute, why don't I just go out and talk to some of these people?
3: Right, yeah.
0: And then getting these interviews on your site,
3: mm-hmm.
0: it obviously is a, a way to drive the traffic because the bigger the name, the more people are going to... yeah.
3: Although I really, uh, I prefer other people to do the interviews. I don't, uh, I don't much like doing it myself.
0: Okay. You delegate that stuff. I
3: delegate. I, I let other people do that's that. beneath. It's not beneath me. It's, um, I feel awkward and okay. strange.
0: Right. Um, but you granted me this interview. Thank you.
3: Well, that's different. I can talk about myself. Oh,
0: okay. All day. Right, you don't have to ask questions or think. think. You don't really have to think.
3: Yeah, it's. um, I don't know. And also, I think it's. uh, I don't necessarily find writers interesting in and of themselves. Like, there has to be, for me to want to interview somebody, like an idea behind it that I'm trying to get at. And honestly, it doesn't happen (laughs) that often, and that maybe sounds terrible, that I'm not compelled to. Uh, get beyond the book um obviously it does happen um like with the the video interviews i've been really happy with who we've talked to but um yeah for the most part i'm like either you know i'm picky i talked to anthony bourdain <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of annoying i guess elitist that's the word i'm looking for. I can talk to Anthony Bourdain or Claudia Rodin or Neil Gaiman or, or like this interview with, um, we just did this, uh, the one that's going up on Monday, the video interview that's going up on Monday is, uh, with Grant Ackett. That's right. Grant Ackett, do you know him? He's a chef here in Chicago and he is... He's got a book. Uh, yeah. The new, the Alinea cookbook. And he's actually a genius. Like you know, people throw that word around, but he has this worldview that does not, it does not equal anybody else's. And it's amazing. So I really just wanted to sit down and talk to him. Um, yeah. okay. And he's just very driven. So I wanted to find out why and how.
0: Okay, so I'm speaking with Jessa Crispin, who is the editor and founder of Bookslot, which is a website, blog, dedicated to all things literary. Sure. Um, so, well, it's funny, because my experience with authors is, my eyes glaze over often at writers' festivals when authors talk about the process. Yeah. Whether or not they use a pen or a computer, or I mean, there's lots of that kind of question that yes, goes sir. on. Yes. <laughs> um, so typically, I like to talk about the book itself, the ideas, as you say, mm-hmm. the, the the imaginative process—not the process so much as what they produced, mm-hmm. the art itself. Yeah. Um, but. You're saying that most writers in and of themselves are boring?
3: I wouldn't say that they're boring. I just maybe don't want
0: to... um, Compare that to... Sorry, compare that to a movie star, for example.
3: Oh, please. Total blanket boring. Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Or or compare the writer whose life is words. Yeah. These are the... is why I got into it, because I wanted to meet some of... These are really interesting people who know how to to tell you why they're interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a bit surprised that you wouldn't uh, want to engage more with the writers themselves.
3: Um, I think it's, well, I, I, BookSlot is sort of a totally selfish operation, honestly.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, selfish in the sense, you, you're going to do exactly what you want to, whatever interests you. And and if right. you've got an audience for that, then so much the better. If not, well, fine. You're still going to go ahead and do what. Yeah,
3: right. and, and and so um, I don't feel like you know I'm not going to interview Ian McGoohan just because he has a new book out and it's you know well, what, just because the publishers are
0: trotting him around.
3: Right. So it really has. to do, I And I don't know what it is. It's just something when I'm reading a book. Okay. I, I want to blog about this, or I want to talk to them, or I want... And it's just, it can be, you know, one sentence. There was one sentence in this, um, Clayton Eshelman, he translated the Cesar Vallejo, um, collection, that just came out, and there was one sentence in his translator's memoir that was just like, oh, I really want to meet him and have a conversation about that. So that was sort of, um, I guess that's what I... Or with Grant Atkins, it was like, I am not an ambitious person, and I, I tend to get distracted by shiny things very easily, so it's hard for me to feel driven and like I'm pursuing a goal. Like, I don't have a goal, except for get the new issue out. And here's somebody who has, like, this total world domination ambition, not just, like, I'm going to open a restaurant, I'm going to fucking change the planet. And I really wanted to what does that feel like like what does some How do know, I get I, some of that? Yeah, like and it while I'm there can I like get a sample of his blood or something and have it analyzed I and mean, you know. So Okay. So that's that's my process. <laughs>
0: okay. Um so where are we now? We've you've you've set it up. You're doing that you're interviewing people For interesting reasons, Mm -hmm. primarily because they're fat. You interview the people that fascinate you. Yes. At least that's what you'll do. Yeah. And the other people, same same holds true, I assume. I assume so. Yeah. They've got carte blanche to do whatever they wish. Yeah. Do you find that uh, that working with a with a group has any? Many bloggers just they're an entity unto themselves, but you've very early on got a group around you
3: yeah I think it's nice to be surrounded by people who are smart
0: (laughs) how did you how did you get them
3: oh they all they basically all find me um
0: they right off the bat the people saw what you were doing they liked uh your caustic outlook among other things well what else did they like I wonder I don't know you still haven't given us that yeah. secret sorry um, and then so they approached you smart people approached you and said I want to write for you
3: yeah that's that's exactly how it happens every every person that's on bookstarts sent me you know like a pitch or something like yeah. that it, or except for Dale Smith who I pursued and made write for me
0: okay do you do you, do you just say I'll thank you or do you pay them
3: uh they get books Oh, used the books. To, they used to get paid and then advertising uh, went down. Okay. And so I had to stop paying them or else I was going to have to like rethink
0: yep. everything. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, so they get books? Yes. Okay. Plus the prestige, of course. Oh,
3: yes, of course.
0: Okay. Are you going to change the name book slot or not?
3: I, I'm thinking I need to change it now that I'm 30 uh, to... Now that uh, you're not a slut anymore? Well, no, that's still there. Um, okay. But now that I'm 30, it's uh, you know it's going to have to be female reader of a certain age. Um, I'm thinking that's going to have to happen in the next couple months.
0: <laughs> so it's going to be something, something, formally book slut?
3: No, it'll just be, you know. And we'll put some drawers on the chick and, uh, you know... Be respectable, for God's sake.
0: What, because you're caving?
3: No, because I'm old now, and it's charming to be the book slut when you're 25, and when you're 30, it's like, oh, God.
0: It's like a 50-year-old wearing a miniskirt.
3: Yeah, it's a little bit inappropriate.
0: Okay, plus it's you're trying too hard.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this uh, my entire adult life, but uh, maybe it's time for a new name.
0: Okay. So are we breaking we're breaking news here. Is this?
3: No, because I'm lazy, and that would mean probably redesigning the website. And I'm not currently dating a webmaster, so I don't know how that's going to work. Um,
0: no, but uh, but have you just given me a scoop here?
3: What that I'm changing the name? Yeah. No, because it won't ever actually happen.
0: Oh, it won't happen. No. Probably oh, okay, not. okay. So you're lying to me then?
3: Well, i will probably just I'll just have to shut it down, uh, because it's gotten name is inappropriate
0: okay <laughs> you really are caving then.
3: no I, well you know who knows what the future holds like I said what, I can't I that can't that make plans and have goals
0: oh wait a minute you've been offered something no
3: no not at the moment
0: has anyone offered you anything
3: yeah who people
0: what are their names?
3: Um, one starts with a D. the <laughs> I mean, other one starts with an R.
0: What company? It was a for? J. Uh,
3: I'm not really willing to talk about that.
0: Okay. So basically, what they want you to do is to pull all your readership into their corporate spider web.
3: Um, I guess.
0: And pay you the major coin to do it.
3: No. No, that it was more like. Otherwise, you
0: would have done it a long time ago.
3: It was more like no, because I can't like uh, put on clothes and go to the office. You know, like I'm not that type of person. (laughs) Um, Hey, wait a
0: sec! You've got Gustave (laughs) Courbet over there, my favorite artist.
3: Yeah, yeah, I
0: love that book. The Origin of the World is probably my favorite. Yeah, uh, it's good. Wow, sorry. That's okay. Next to the Cream of Tank Girl. Yeah. Nerve. Don't kiss me, and a few others. Hmm. Sorry, that that's just that's very important. That good stuff, Um. He was. Uh, he rocked.
3: He did rock. He. Uh, My other art He's
0: a bit. I mean, he, he's a little bit like you. Huh? Is he your hero? Because he he, he basically know. he he painted the ordinary man mm-hmm. in ways that no other artist before him, as you well know, uh, painted, mm-hmm. which was kind of revolutionary. What, and you're, what are you doing this revolutionary?
3: Nothing, nothing <laughs> that I know of. I too am... You must you be doing something know. revolutionary, <laughs> come know. on. <laughs> okay. Um, what were we talking
0: about? Uh, oh, job offers. Yeah, job offers, yeah.
3: No, it was more like uh, expansion or moving into a different direction, like me keeping lit and then doing like consulting or something for them, uh, publishing or like something along those lines. Okay. It sort of varied um, depending on who I was talking to.
0: Right. But you don't want to, I mean ideally you don't want to sell out, do you? Or was it a sellout?
3: It wasn't so much... It wasn't a sellout. It was... I would still retain ownership and everything. It would just... I would be doing something with them as well.
0: Okay. Who's them again?
3: Some people. Okay. Very nice. Very nice, charming
0: people. Okay. Um, okay, let's just... Uh, in. I, I think we've covered the history a little bit. mm mm-hmm. The philosophy. We, we. You've given me the caustic... I don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And if they're interested, they, they can read. If not, they can piss off.
3: Yeah.
0: The future, you've been offered something, but that's just not quite right.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Where where are we? Uh, first of all, just just maybe a little bit of advice to the, to the uh, nascent blogger.
3: Oh, I get asked for advice a lot. Oh dear. I never know what to say because I don't know why books that really works. Uh, be yourself. I guess, but then, but be yourself, but be really interesting. You know. Be, a lot of people, a lot of people aren't interesting. Much better version. That's in of fact yourself.
0: that's why they invented alcohol, to make other people interesting.
3: I can't blog drunk. I've I did once. Okay. And it didn't really work out for me, but um, yeah, no, I get. I,
0: be interesting.
3: Be interesting. What
0: happens if you're not interesting?
3: Then don't stop block. talking. Okay. Yeah. I better
0: or stop talking.
3: Then. <laughs> or like, you know, I don't know. Why would you think that? everyone should find themselves interesting at least? You know.
0: <laughs> Unless if you they've got s-
3: you should like go see a therapist.
0: Exactly, that's the self-esteem again. Yeah. Okay. Any other advice?
3: um my personal uh life philosophy is uh, to be uh, like one of the spinsters in a W Somerset mom book and that seems to be working out for me pretty well um that's
0: so advice like, to a, p- a potential blogger
3: yeah because it's like uh, educate yourself be glamorous like work on yourself don't take shit from anybody don't give away your power like be the strong witty one in the room um so yeah that's that would be my advice think of yourself as a W. Somerset mom spinster
4: okay
0: and does the club foot help or not
3: the spinsters don't have a club foot
0: no I know but
3: but he's my patron saint
0: He's yeah, there on my wall. I loved the writer's notebook. I read it when I was about tw-
3: twenty.
0: I love him dearly. He was a misogynist.
3: Yeah, well, he was. He was also, you know, gay.
0: He got really badly treated by his first. Wife. He married her because she told him she was pregnant. Yeah. And they had the worst marriage.
3: But he was also extremely aware of what marriage did to women, and those books are my favorite of his, his like The Painted Veil* and Mrs. Craddock, like, just pin you in and, um, you know, at the time, take away all your power, make you completely dependent and bitter and angry. Um, so yeah. <laughs>
0: It's funny that you should mention Somerset Maugham, um, because he changed my life. How's that? He wrote a book on the ten greatest novels ever mm-hmm. written, and before reading that, I didn't care for fiction at all. And then I read all ten of the books that he'd recommended.
3: And, and what were the books?
0: War and Peace. Brothers Karamazov The Red and the Black Madame Bovary Magic Mountain uh, um, Paragorio I think uh, Moby Dick Vanity Fair How many that?
3: That's eight. You're counting them? No, I'm not. <laughs> yes, you are.
0: I think I've grabbed one finger twice. Uh, anyway. Well, then, nine. So he, uh, yeah, uh, and it's interesting. That, uh, I, what I said I was closing here, right? In closing, I'd ask for some advice, mm-hmm. and then you said spinster,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and then I wanted to end with some... You've recommended... You've recommended a couple of his books. Yes. It's interesting how he's seen as sort of a mid-level writer by, you know, by, what, history or the establishment or...
3: Yes. But as he says in his memoir, you know, the reason he doesn't have any style is because he had more important things to get down on paper than the style. I think you like his persona.
0: You like his persona as much as you like his writing. I love him, top to bottom. There's a site, uh...
3: yeah, the dedicated. W Summers Mom yeah. blog,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. Um Okay. So the spinster I'm so grateful for the editing function.
3: <laughs> it's fantastic, isn't
0: yeah. it? Yeah. Um no we- more advice then? Like, Link to people. I mean, you must have done something other than uh, you know, I just doing what I like to do. But did you have some sort of SEO person,
1: what search that mean? engine
0: optimization person, no. No. tell you oh, you going to repeat these words or? No. Uh, did you make a point of you? You did a whole bunch of linking. Yeah. Like almost, and th- that must be part of it.
3: I guess. I mean, that's the whole blog thing. That's purpose.
0: Maybe that's why mine isn't as popular as yours. I don't blink very much. You know, I've been around
3: for seven years. I I am sort of seen as the man now. You know, like the establishment. So, uh, yeah. You
0: know. How does that How does that follow from what I just said?
3: Well, the the other a lot of the other newer literary blogs. It's hard to get. Attention! They're all sort of okay. because it came at a later time, and books that was really it was the only one alongside Moby Lives, which went away and then came back in one way. Just yeah. recently, yeah. yeah. Um, so at the time, it was way easier, I guess, and I mean, I guess Together. to get attention because there wasn't as, as many to okay. go by.
0: Okay, can you n- name me your top?
3: And oh, favorite Jesus. um okay uh, the varieties of religious experience by William James
0: no 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 no
3: novels only
0: no 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 what you I didn't even finish my question
3: oh because I get the question of ten favorite books all, all time. the time <laughs> and what do
0: you think I am some kind of cookie cutter I'm sorry. But now My that you My top it,
3: ten favorite animals? What are we going no, for? No, no, we're
0: going to go top ten favorite literary blogs. Oh, God, don't ask me Yeah, that. no, we got to do that. No. And you won't insult anyone who you don't mention because you're uptight being interviewed by me, obviously, and you, some of them will slip your mind. Okay, let's go with the top five or ten or whatever um, books. I like that. I love that exercise. William James...
3: Um, In Memoriam to Identity by Kathy Acker, Dubliners by James Joyce, End of the Affair by Graham Greene, uh, Thin Place by Katherine Davis, uh, can I look at my shelves? Um, ah, oh, fuck me, um.
0: Who's that by? <laughs> uh, shit. Is there a book with fuck in, in the title?
3: Ah. <gasps> There's one called I Love Dick. Um, the Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson. Lenark by Alistair Gray. Um,
0: Jonathan Coe is a fan of...
3: Uh, I love Jonathan Coe.
0: He's a fan of,
3: uh, yeah, yeah I mean, Alistair Gray. Uh, the London Review books thing. Um, I guess... Uh, Dream Songs by John Berryman just so I can pretend like I read poetry. Um, the Golden Vow by Sir <laughs> James Fraser. Oh my god. Um, I don't know.
0: I think that's about nine or ten. Okay. You can email me the, the, the one that you left out. Okay. It doesn't sound like you give a shit though. Like this could be any ten. No? Is this a real ten? It's that
3: came up into my head. Right.
0: Which is the answer that most people usually give? Is I love all sorts of books, and it depends on my mood. Here's ten, but anyway. So, are those genuinely your top ten?
3: Genuinely, they are my far- Some of my favorite books. Okay, yes.
0: great. Right, right. So, how about the literary blogs?
3: I don't read blogs. Honestly, I'm not fucking around. I do not read blogs. Sorry.
0: <laughs> what were your top 10 favorite books?
3: I really like Moby Lives.
0: Okay, nine more.
3: That's it. <laughs> I really I never have um, I don't uh, I don't I just don't read them. I don't feel compelled to uh, I okay. don't so yeah Dennis right. though of Moby Lives, he's nice. Nice chat.
0: Anyone, uh, okay, not your favorites, but who would you, if, if someone's just sort of entering the blogosphere, where do you think they should go to kind of get a good...
3: Me and Dennis. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, the only, I read, I do, I admit, I read one, but only because I hate that person Um, and I feel like hate is sometimes better than caffeine. So I read that first thing in the morning where I can hate and get that out of the way.
0: The adrenaline rush that it gives you. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, uh, and that's really the only one that I read.
0: And that one is? Not telling
3: you that. (laughs) I'm not going on record with that shit.
0: (laughs) It's nice that you hate though, like it's it's hate and love, you know, it's it's some passion
3: hate very useful emotion
0: okay um no, no you're not going to give me anything else then in terms of about blogs yeah no okay um I've got advice I've done advice what else should we do is there anything else
3: I don't know People usually ask about uh, the fact that I'm a college dropout. That seems to fascinate people.
0: I couldn't care less about that.
3: Yeah, then no.
0: You'll go back and get a PhD, or you'll get an honorary one probably somewhere.
3: Yeah, I'm not going back.
0: Okay. No, I don't really care about that. Uh, how can we wind this up in such a way that's going to really attract a lot of attention to my website
3: (laughs) i don't know i don't know what to tell you i can't think of anything scandalous i would like to say right now i say enough scandalous things on my blog on a daily basis so it's you know i don't have anything saved up
0: well and you wouldn't give it to me anyway
3: probably not no no
0: What about out of out of uh, a sense of um, humanity and altruism?
3: What would you like me to say in the sense of humanity and...
0: Helping me out.
3: Al- altruism, right. What would you like me to say that will attract a lot of attention?
0: No, I'm not going to put it into your mouth, though.
3: <laughs> I could... Uh, what did I do? List out the writers I've slept with? Um, maybe the... Uh,
0: how many writers have you slept with? I don't know. That, not that many. handful. Okay. Anyone in particular that's really?
3: Not that nothing I'm going to actually say on while being recorded.
0: <laughs> so, I, can I put? Uh, Jessica Crispin divulges writers she has slept with. If you want to. Could you have to divulge? This is the headline. Just divulge one. Um.
3: No. 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 I'm very private about Despite my actual this patina, private life.
0: The patina of sluttishness.
3: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's, Def-
0: it's a defensive shell.
3: Well, it's not a defensive shell. It's you know, it's a well, it's a persona, I guess. But it's yeah. also uh, I don't know. I don't really. I don't. I don't really. I think the reason that I don't read blogs is there's so much about the people's personal lives, and I just don't. I can't be bothered to care. Um, and some people do it well like Maud Newton can talk about her family in a really interesting way but for most part it's like oh I'm packing or you know, I'm alphabetizing my books isn't that fascinating uh, and it's not
0: um, pretty, I mean I, I, I can tell you that there, there are blogs that I like that aren't at all like that
3: well there are a lot of them though yeah but um, yeah so I, I, don't, I don't really talk about my personal life No. Online.
0: And you evidently won't talk about it with me either, and you know what? I'm happy that you're not talking about it. I'm I'm interested in books.
3: Yeah.
0: And so, how can we wrap this up?
3: Uh, We haven't really talked about books. We've mostly talked about my business.
0: Well, that was sort of what fascinated, I mean, you know. Because in a sense, I think I told you about my uh, goal. Is to talk to everyone in the business mm-hmm. about their roles. Why? Why am I doing that? Yeah. Because I want to document the book at the turn of this century for posterity, so that I will be immortal.
3: It's very humble. It's humble goal.
0: Well, we're all gonna die and I don't want to die all right and I do have some children mm-hmm. so I've taken care of that uh-huh uh yeah this is you know what this is getting cut out for sure <laughs> it makes me sound like an egotistical we don't want to go there a little bit yeah uh, no that's part of it though I mean I think part of it I'm I'm doing because I I think it's a service and I'm passionate and love I just go I love books and so the uh, the uh, the whole idea behind it was to talk to all sorts of different people about what they do with books, because I'm really interested in it, um, and uh, and I really like talking to people about about books, okay. every single aspect of the book. And I think there may be some value to people fifty years from now looking back on this time to. Listen to what people have to say about about what's going on with books and blogs are an interesting aspect of that. Um, and you're and you're an interesting practitioner of a, a, a new interesting phenomenon. Uh, and have we 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 said we've said I've talked about what you did, how you did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what your thoughts about the blog? We touched on that I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is there anything that I didn't cover? Just in terms of your role as a blogger? The impact that it's having on the industry?
3: Oh, you'd have to ask somebody else about that. I don't know. Okay. Because I don't, I don't really pay attention to that part of it.
0: No. Um. Do you have any parting words? You're not gonna slag anyone.
3: No, I mean, no. Okay. No more so than I slag people on my Your size, daily yeah. basis. Okay. <laughs>
0: um. Future of the blog
3: sure it has one
0: <laughs> yours and in general
3: yeah both i think um we'll see what happens it's it's really just sort of um the blog is sort of what i do between 5 a.m and 8 a.m while i'm waking up in the morning um
0: the rest of the time you're doing freelance writing for
3: or editing or reading or you know something like that
0: for different uh, publications primarily um
3: uh, mostly right now just the smart set or um, smart set NPR uh, the smart set it's Minkin's um, old man um, okay. that got re whatever by uh, Drexel University as a, their literary magazine okay and I have I'm their books columnist
0: so once a month twice a month twice a month okay
3: yeah it's an alright gig
0: great well thank you very much for your time
3: Sure.
0: And uh, best of luck with uh, who you are.
3: Best of luck at your immortality.
0: That's not going in. Thanks. <laughs> was that... That was a little bit egotistical? Was it? <laughs> Fine. Oh, dear. I don't have... Okay. Um, actually, do you have a Firefox... Sure, Does that make sense? Yeah. Let's try that one. Okay, great. Okay, so here we go. And I'm gonna make sure we sound great by editing out all the and yeah. Keith Michael Fields is the executive director of the American Library Association headquartered in Chicago.
4: Welcome to the video Thank you very much. First question, what do you do? I am the executive director of the American Library Association. Uh, The American Library Association is the world's oldest library association. It was founded in 1876 by Melville Dewey and a few friends uh, to advance the cause of uh, libraries uh, in the United States and in the world. Um, Library sciences or libraries? Libraries and library science. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was a very fruitful period, needless to say. Uh, Not only did they establish the first library schools, uh, they really were instrumental in the creation of public libraries uh, throughout the United States, which didn't uh, really exist uh, in the 1870s, and uh, were also um, doing such things as developing cataloging systems. and uh, uh, basically creating most of what uh, now constitutes librarianship. So um, so pretty, uh, pretty impressive pedigree. Uh, indeed. Um, ALA has been um, active for uh, now, what, uh, uh, over 130 years. Um, over a period of time, ALA gradually became, uh, I think, a, a comprehensive voice for libraries. Uh, At this point our mission is to provide leadership in the development uh, and promotion of library services uh, and also to uh, increasingly uh, to fight for public access to information uh, and for um, the ability to uh, uh, engage in learning through libraries. Uh, So I think at this point the mission of the association really does focus um, on the profession.